The following is a hoop ball presentation. I'm your host, Corbin Ford. You can follow me on Twitter at CorbinMBA. This is a hoop ball presentation, so check out Hoop Ball on Twitter at Hoop Ball Tweets, online hoop-ball.com. Really have the NBA season rolling in less than 50 days or less than 60 days at this point. Um, also got football coming up in a couple weeks, got fantasy plays there. Um, kind of everything you need to get an edge between fantasy, um, sports bets, all of that, as well as just your general NBA content like yours truly here so definitely make sure to check that out one more time on twitter at hoopball tweets online hoop-ball.com we're taking a break from our off-season reviews because we have a very special guest here on a very cool topic um i'd already said coming the off-season i'd be doing some book reviews kind of get hopefully getting discussed with um authors uh, about basketball books because i love this stuff so really happy to have found one um a couple weeks ago read his book titled the Knicks of the 90s, had an absolute blast, reached out, was fortunate to get a response back. Uh, his name is Paul Nepper. You can find him on Twitter at paulinep, P-A-U-L-I-E-K-N-E-P, uh, former writer for Bleacher Report, um, just a man of many talents. Paul, how are you doing, sir? I'm good, Corbin. Thanks for having me on, man. Always always love talking hoops. Oh, yeah, man. I'm glad because this is that's the same with me. man. I, I really do enjoy it. Um, I got to say, I was telling you this before, a minute ago before you came on here, but kind of digging into the basketball book, like market space or whatever you'd like to call it. It, it feels like we have there's very like team specific books. You find a lot on the Lakers, you find a lot on the Knicks, like 70s Knicks. You know, you find a few books on the Warriors from the last couple of years. But it's really hard to kind of find those team books that are about like a specific error in a team's history that was iconic either for, you know, the moments they had, the characters, uh, the classic clashes, or, or some combination of them all. And so it was very surprising to kind of be, I was perusing through Amazon looking for books, found the Knicks of the 90s. I was like, get out of here. I knew there was a Knicks book coming. And I'm like, I didn't know there was already one there. So I grabbed it. And man, this book was bomb. I'm so happy to have you on and really happy to kind of get started talking about this. And I, I guess it kind of leads me to our first question, which is, um, the book process, when, when, especially kind of being one of, I think probably one of the first to like do a full book on just that era, 90s basketball from like 91 through, I think it went to 2001, 2002 kind of. Um, what inspired you to write this book to kind of be a trend center in that way? Yeah, I, um, I, I, uh, I, I grew up on those teams, right? I mean, I, 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 um, I'm from New York. Uh, I, I, I kind of, I started watching really got into the Knicks like mid late eighties, really like when Rick Pitino was there, that was, that was when I started really getting it. Um, but those nineties, that nineties era was uh, just such a thrill for me. I lived and died with all those games. And, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, I started this book a few years ago. Uh, obviously it's been a, a, a pretty rough century for the Knicks and Knicks fans like myself. And so I, I, I think um, I've always kind of, uh, I think I, I probably just think about those teams more than <laughs> probably more than I should, but just because, you know, that the present had been so bleak for so long. Um, I think Nick fans really like myself really um, think about those teams a lot and miss those teams. And uh, it was just kind of one morning I, I was just kind of thinking about, it. I was like, you know, somebody should write a book about 
the 90s Knicks. And my next thought was, well, why not me? <laughs> there it is. So then I scrambled. I was like, well, let me make sure. I don't think that anybody's written one, you know, so let me make sure. And there was a book about just the 99 season when they went to the finals. Um, it, it, uh, always Ballin? Something, I think yeah. Something like uh, with uh, uh, Frank. Mike Wise and Frank Isola write it. Um, or Just Ballin. I'm sorry. It's called Just Ballin. Um, but it, really, it was really just that season. So I made sure there was not a book on the 90s Knicks. And I thought, all right, this is this is my opportunity. That is really cool. Yeah. And I, like I said, it was cool that you actually went from the beginning. I mean, it starts off basically that important year of 91, sort of where you have Ewing kind of, you know, having had a couple of years in New York, kind of had, you know, the brief ups and then the kind of the downs of their recent playoff experiences He's kind of wanting out. Um, you're trying the Knicks were trying to get Riley in the picture. I love where the book's setting, like to kind of lead to their glory days and the rise and the fall there. Really cool there. But um, speaking just more on the book process, uh, you said, you know, obviously looked around, saw there really wasn't a book that kind of filled that need. So you went in and, and went there and filled it yourself. Were there any challenges associated with making the book? I mean, obviously, you know, you had a large uh, amount of games available on YouTube, which are other places as well, but just in regards to like interviews, maybe. Um, certain topics about the team, you know, reaching players about trades or whatever the case may be, um, that that might have been a challenge. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's um, it's kind of a two step process with, um, you know, I, I, I did. There's a ton of research you could do on your own, mm-hmm. um, watching tons of games, um, reading countless articles from The New York Times, all the New York newspapers and sports, old sports illustrated and, and all that. Um you know, now there's another one now with we're doing podcasts, right? I mean, a lot, um, a lot of, uh, a lot of the guys do podcasts now. And, and, and so, you know, Ewing's done a couple and Ben Gundy's done a lot and, and stuff like that. So you try and get your hands on whatever you can of what's out there, um, books that are relevant in one way or another. But then, of course, you want, you want new material, right? I mean, that's what really makes the book jump out. And, and you get that by talking to the guys. And that's like a two-step process. First, you got to kind of track them down and get a, <laughs> you know, get a, get a contact for them somehow. And then you got to try and convince them to talk to you. Um, so, yeah, that was difficult. You know, for a lot of people, it's hard just to get, get a hold of them um, or, or, you know, get a contact for them. And then, and then there were guys, you know, unfortunately, you know, there were some people I just couldn't talk to. I mean, the, the two biggest were Ewing and Riley. Uh, were, were the two big names that <clears throat> I desperately wanted to talk to and just weren't, wasn't able to get a hold of. So, um, you know, and, and there's been a ton of stuff written about those guys. And I talked to so many other people about those guys, um, but certain things, you know, specifically one thing that jumps to mind is, is Riley's leaving New York. You yeah. know, I talked to Dave Checkett's a great length about that, um, you know, it became very personal between Riley and Checkett's and I got Checkett's account of it. Um, and Riley's talked a little bit about it in the past. And I talked to other people who were involved, like the Knicks owner and stuff like that. Um, but uh, it is a drawback that I, that I wasn't able to talk to Riley about that specifically. I feel that. I definitely think you compensated with that, like, you know, using sources to kind of get as much of a, a full fleshed out view as you could. But I did think that was interesting, especially being that, you know, those are two big pieces. And of course, you know, the chance of getting everyone is really kind of hard. I mean, right. even for like, you know, major documentaries and stuff, there's certain people who just, it's hard to get in contact, especially if you're just like, hey, let's write a book, you know? <laughs> but yeah. um, yeah, I, well, I have a, just 
a random story, whatever you have, but like, what is the funniest story if you have kind of about the time you had putting this book together? Because like, I'm personally enamored with I reckon library. I love books, but just the process of, okay, you know, we have the idea, we're putting it together. Like, I'm sure there was something somewhere with an interview or like, you know, coming up with like, you know, a realization of something that you're like, oh, you know, this has to be done too. Just any story that you can share that's probably humorous toward that. Yeah. Um, like you said, there are a lot of little <laughs> little things and little moments and even more than funny frustrations, just things that pop up that you don't expect. And mm-hmm. I guess some of them are funny in retrospect. Um, one one I really like was I and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give the guy's name because he turned out to be a really nice guy. And okay. <laughs> but he, he was someone he was someone who worked in the Knicks organization throughout the nineties. And and I I call him up and and mind you, I'm I'm like you know, I'm, I'm a little nervous. Every call I make, I'm a little nervous. Cause you, you know, you don't know if they're going to talk to you. If they want to talk to you, if they're going to be nice, whatever. Um, so he, I call this guy up and he picks up the phone and he's, he just goes off immediately. I don't even, I, I don't even like, doesn't even say hello. He just picks up you mother effer, you scumbag. Stop calling me. You piece of blah, blah, blah. I mean, just a tyrant. Wow. I've never been cursed out like that in my life. Never. <laughs> and I'm just like, and my jaw dropped. I'm like, what, like, what is going on here? Yeah. Like, is, did I call the wrong number? Like, I, like who, why is this guy going crazy on me? Mm-hmm. And, and then he stopped, he kind of winds down. He's like, all right, so scumbag. He's like, so is this, is it, is it you just being harassing me again? Like you have been all day long, just another scumbag call, or is this a real phone call? So I said, this, this is a real phone call. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I said, my, and I just jumped into my, I just like, it never even happened. I just yeah. jumped into my pitch. You know, my, hey, this is Paul Nepper. You know, I'm writing a book about the, about the Knicks of the nineties. I'd love to talk to you about, about, you know, working for the team and dead silence. He just stops. Wow. And I, and then he, and then after like a little bit, he's just like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so, he just apologizing like crazy. And then both of us just start cracking up. He just, uh-huh. I, I just, I just started laughing because I was like, that was freaking nuts, man. That was I intense. cannot believe what just happened. <laughs> I start cracking up. He starts cracking up. Uh-huh. And then we had, honestly, I think, it, I think it probably worked to my benefit because I think he felt bad and, and was like extra open with me because of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, he ended up being a great guy, really nice. I don't, some guy was like cold calling him, I guess, several times that day. And he thought that's what, that was I was that guy again and just played into me, but it was, it was crazy. Wow. That's a good one. I, it's almost <laughs> like he was like doing a screening of sorts kind of, you know, yeah. that's yeah. funny. And as you said, like, as I mean, as a New Yorker, like you kind of feel, okay, you get used to it a little bit here and there, but like, you're like, well, I've never had that reaction before. Never, it must have never. been a heck of a, <laughs> a heck of a response. <laughs> well, that's cool. I appreciate that. Um, so like turning into from the book to the actual of course, the content, the Knicks, um, the 90s. Uh, let's start with, like, the rise. I have the, like, 91 to 94 as they were, like, assembling pieces. But yeah. you, you kind of set the stage, and I like this, where, I mean, the linchpin of this whole thing was Patrick Ewing. Um, and you start with where he was in 91 um, in terms of kind of being on the outside of the organization, you know, looking along with David Falk for, for greener pastures and how Dave Chuckett was, you know, frankly trying to, like, upgrade around him in terms of coaching and also convince him not to test free agency. Um, can you like describe just kind of Ewing around that time, um, his angst with New York, the, the play style that he was, because he kind of was different in terms of his athleticism and just general play. Um, and also like how you described his like passing and different different um, components of his style that kind of made him a player that 
that, you know, in the early nineties was just peak. Yeah. I mean, Patrick was, uh, you know, really all goes back to um, just kind of his reputation when he came into the league, um, which I think shaped so much of his career and his relationship with the New York fans and a lot of his, a lot of the things that went on. Um, you know, a lot of people forget or, or are just too young to know he was very possibly the biggest, most recognized athlete to ever enter the NBA. Um, because, you know, the way I, I compare it is, imagine, you remember how LeBron, how huge LeBron was coming out of high school. Imagine if LeBron was that big. Imagine if he then played four years of college ball. And we got to see him all the time. You know, high school was like, yeah, it was a lot of hype, but nobody really, we didn't really know. And, we, and most people hadn't seen him play. But Patrick, we saw, you know, he played three championship games. He was at, you know, on in national TV all the time at Georgetown for four years. So he was, he had that like LeBron level hype, but, but he had backed it up at the college level too. And we'd seen him, we'd all seen him play. So there was such high expectations and such pressure on him coming to New York as, as the savior of this franchise. And um, in his first six years, the team went through five different coaches. They went through three different general managers. And uh, it was just not the best run organization. Uh, I mean, you know, modern Nick fans can relate to the, mm-hmm. the, that kind of turnover, that kind of, you know, constant change. And just I think he felt like there was no stability there. There was no direction there. Um Dave Checkets told me when he when he first talked to Patrick when when Checkets first got the job he he compared it to talking to an orphan who had already lived in several different foster homes. He said wow. there was just no no trust there, you know. And so Patrick was he was twenty nine at that point, you know. He was pushing thirty, and he had had some knee problems. And I think he was looking at it like, all right, well, I don't see them, you know. I don't I don't see the Knicks that that last year before Riley came ninety ninety one season they were just under five hundred. You know, and I think he looked at it like I don't, I don't, I don't see us competing for a championship anytime soon. And you know, I'm, I'm, I'm approaching thirty. Like I, I want to win, and it's not going to happen here. Um, kind of, you know, like LeBron leaving Cleveland the first time. Yeah. Um, and so he wanted out, and um, it's fascinating, really, because if you, if, if that happened now, he probably he would have got out, right? The, the whole dynamic of the league has changed. The players have so much more power now. That if that happened now, he would have forced his way out. But back then, the the players didn't have quite that power, and so the Knicks actually shopped him. They, I was, I thought it was fascinating. Checkers told me he, he flew down to San Antonio, met with the owner of the Spurs, yes. and offered them Ewing and ten million dollars for Robinson. That was some, wow. And, you know, ten million dollars then was a lot more than it is now. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Knicks didn't find. You know, the Spurs said no to that. The Knicks didn't find an offer that they liked, and. Uh, you know, they were asking for a ton for a franchise player like Patrick and ultimately decided to, you know, they, they, you know, they brought in Riley and I think Riley helped convince Patrick that, Hey, maybe things are different now and maybe I can win now. And, and uh, he decided to stay, but um, that was really interesting for me because I was, I was, I was young at the time. And so I didn't fully remember that. And I don't think it was, News just wasn't the same as it is now. You, you know, Woj wasn't dropping bombs on Twitter, but yeah. and it wasn't. You were like, it, it wasn't. It just wasn't as much hype, and uh, <clears throat> so it wasn't. I, I kind of barely remembered that he was unhappy, and it was interesting for me to learn how unhappy he was and the lengths that he and David Falk went to to try and get him out of New York. Yeah, I was going to say it's one of the many 
things I appreciate about the book, and we're going to get more into it a little bit later, but not just like behind the scenes of how they felt, but the fact that I didn't know the Knicks even shopped, you know, Ewing, or, or how right. when they went to kind of build the team later on, the different targets they had. Like, it's interesting to go, okay, you know, they end up picking Derek Harper. Um, you know, they draft Greg Anthony. You know, they have these different guys they pick up, but not, oh, well, their initial targets were X, Y, Z. We'll get to that in a second there. But right. I guess I also want to talk about by the time, and we're going to kind of focus on Riley in a minute, but um, Ewing's game at that point. I mean, you know, in college, you know, he was a defensive monster, post-up guy from Georgetown, comes into the NBA. Same thing, even though, I mean, he was sharing, like, front court for a bit with Bill Cartwright, which is kind of awkward. I mean, he's at power forward for a bit, and then, you know, finally got the center. Um, he was a lot more of this kind of, like, just force in terms of just pure athleticism. And by the time Riley came, um, you would talk about how his game had really went to the fact that his kind of offensive game had kind of surpassed defensively. Um, a lot more of a jump shooter, an accurate one, but still kind of going there. Um, defensively still okay, but like, you know, taking a little bit longer to load up, not being that same guy. Kind of talk about, I mean, obviously he's hitting 30 at that point, but just the the change around the Knicks in terms of personnel around, I don't want to say the client because they played very well, but let's just say the the change in play style for, for Ewing. Yeah, he, um, I, you know, part of it was uh... – he swears he he was a, he could shoot in college, um, but, but John Thompson would told him to get his ass in the post, and that okay. was that. Um, but I think, but I think he, I think it developed a lot. You know, definitely in college, like you said, his defensive game far surpasses offensive game. Um, you know, in college he was more mostly a dunker, uh, and he definitely wasn't shooting jump shots. Um, and people were talking about him as as the next Bill Russell, this great defensive force, mm-hmm. and he was a great defensive player. I don't think he was. White is, he wasn't Bill Russell great. He was great. Um, but I think also, I I think people underestimate how much Patrick's knees bothered him. And I think even by that time, by 1991, I think he didn't have quite the athleticism that he had in his early 20s. Already he was starting to decline a little bit. Um, and you could see that some when he, on defense, when he blocked shots, he used to have to really, like you say, gather himself. He kind of like squatted down before he came back up. Yeah. He didn't just kind of have that like natural spring to him anymore. Um, and offense, I mean, he just, you know, give him a lot of credit. He worked really hard, uh, developed some beautiful post moves. He had this great, you know, that baseline fadeaway jump shot. He, uh, he was, he became pretty lethal from the elbow. And of course this is before, uh, big men, I mean, you know, the game has changed so much. Big men weren't, weren't shooting outside shots. They weren't even shooting 15-footers, never mind threes. You know, yeah. it, was, it, was, it was down on the block. You know, think Shaq or, you know, not, not very few, very few centers could, could step out and hit those jumpers. And, and he became a pretty, a pretty deadly offensive player. Definitely, definitely. And I, I mean, that's just what I was trying to get in terms of understanding where he had become as a player. And you said it, the knees probably being more of an impact. Um, and also, I like the fact that you kind of went into his past, you know, his relationship with his mom. He was a quiet kind of personality, um, had some humor. I love, I'm not going to leak it out here. Definitely check out the book. I'll, I'll share where more um, you can get at the end. But um, the April Fool's joke that he uh, played <laughs> yeah. with the reporter, yeah. <laughs> that was yeah. hilarious to me. But like his personality being... Um, different for the New York media, um, also New York fans, you know, uh, we all know New York speak their mind, you know, not really, t- I don't think turn on a dime, but like, hey, if they're feeling hype right now, they're feeling hype, they want to curse you off the court the next minute, that's what they're going to do, and for Ewing, that was a market departure from what he was used to, um, and it took him a while, all his career, really, but like, especially up to 91, and it kind of reached ahead, where he was like, you know, I don't know if I, I really am about this, um, what was his kind of personality like, I guess, evolving in terms of him being, I don't want to say withdrawn, but definitely someone who 
um it was a cult it was a culture clash a little bit i think that's, that's probably best to say yeah yeah i mean i think patrick was uh somewhat introverted and i think um look some guys are have the personality right i mean so patrick really in the 80s when he was coming in the mid 80s is when is when the nba started was really exploding in popularity and you got you had guys like michael jordan and magic johnson and charles barkley who were these you know charismatic guys with great personality great smiles they loved the spotlight they, they were starting to a lot of money was starting to be pumped into the game and they're like all right i want my share like give me the camera you know mm-hmm. point it on me that's not everybody that's not everybody's personality and that's i don't know how much you could even really change that or work on that you know i mean I, yeah you could work on it to some extent but some guys aren't like that you know think about tim duncan you know he was he wasn't he just wasn't about that uh think of or even a guy like who played with Duncan, Kawhi leonard yeah right he's yeah. very quiet introverted guy that's not a negative thing that's his personality he's not he doesn't want the cameras all over him and so that was kind of patrick patrick was you know you talked about his past he had he was an immigrant he came from jamaica when he was 12 years old um he got made fun of a lot when he was young because of his accent because he was very poor because he was extremely tall and not particularly coordinated initially he worked like held but to you know, kind of, and I think kind of grew in his body as some kids, you know, tall kids do. Mm-hmm. Um, but he got made fun of a lot. And and I think he was a quiet person or a private person to begin with. And, and a lot of the racism and racism as well, you know, that he faced um, led him to withdraw into himself even more. So you have this kind of quiet, um, unassuming guy who doesn't really want the spotlight thrust into New York City, you know, and he and, and not just New York, and and he's the you know he's the lone superstar in New York City. You know, it's not like he's Anthony Davis and he's got LeBron playing with him or you know yeah. or whoever you know uh, another superstar to share that burden with him. It was all on him, and it it wasn't a great fit for his personality. And so he was uh, standoffish with the media. He was uncomfortable, I think, in large part because he didn't trust them, and he wasn't particularly comfortable in front of in front of the camera. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think they really portrayed him as being rude and, you know, just not a nice guy when I, 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 I don't think that was necessarily the case. Um, I think he just wasn't comfortable in the role. And so it was interesting in doing the research to find out some of the behind the scenes stuff like that, you know, when the cameras weren't there, like he was a jokester and he, he liked, he, you know, he was, he liked to shoot the shit with his teammates and mess around in the locker room and stuff like that. He wasn't, um, he was just very private and, and didn't like the attention. And so it, it caused, it caused frustration. I think, I think that, I think his demeanor combined with um, the expectations that were placed on him when he got to New York, those two things caused a lot of friction with the fans. Um, the thing too is he, he, he had such a scowl on the court. You know, he played with such an angry face and a lot of stars do that. But then they, you know, I mean, think of like Kobe. Kobe did that, but Kobe would then go to a press conference and flash that million dollar smile. Yep. He'd yep. show you another he'd show you another side of himself or, you know, something that you could like or grab onto. Patrick didn't do that. You know, it was just that cold, that scowl, that mean look, that that was it. And so he kind of throughout his career there was that tension with him and the fans and 
with him in the media and by extension with him, the fans, I think. Definitely. And I thought that was one of the more interesting pieces. I mean, obviously kind of starting with him, but learning more about his, um, demeanor off the court and, and probably just being misunderstood at a time that's like you said, media coverage is totally different now. And certain stars also have, um, ways to kind of circumvent that, you know, like you said, right. Kobe and others where they're outside just for a moment can kind of hide whatever they're actually inside in terms of being more, you know, withdrawn to themselves. So definitely thought that was interesting there. Thanks for the insight. Um, in terms of Pat Riley, other big piece, I kind of want to go in with you. I, again, the kind of dive you gave in terms of, you know, his upbringing, a um, little bit of his NBA career, kind of being a journeyman there, obviously Showtime Lakers, everything with that, you know, um, kind of running them out, burning them out a little bit toward the end. Um, and then NBC and coming to the Knicks, kind of what did you, let, let's kind of talk about Pat Riley in a minute. I call it the Pat Riley effect, um, but just in general, kind of being courted, coerced, sort of the cases to New York, um, kind of settling down, like, what was the lowdown of what you found on Pat Riley and his impact, obviously being almost as big as Ewing's um, for that early part of the Knicks uh, rise? Yeah, you got a sense of that a little bit as a fan and just watching. Um, there aren't too many. There aren't. He, he was like this force of personality. You know, I mean, he came in with so much. He had so much cachet because he'd won those four rings in in uh, in L.A. Um, so he came in with such credibility and respect to begin with. But he just he was. Uh, extremely, extremely intense, focused man. I mean, a couple people told me he's the most focused person they've ever seen in their lives. And it was everything. No detail was too small for Pat Riley. Um, and uh, he just uh, almost through sheer will kind of imposed his personality on that team. Um, I, you know, I, I've been a sports fan for a long time and, you know, New York sports, I've never, I see the only thing I could compare it to was when Bill Parcells came to the Jets in the 90s. Um, and he took this, you know, team that went, they were 1 in 15 the year before. And the next year they went 9 and 7 with basically the same talent. He just instilled this discipline and this belief and the structure. Um, it was very interesting. Like you knew he was a great coach and, a, you know, a great executive too. But it was very interesting to hear people, they speak of him almost with reverence, you know, fellow people, his assistant coaches, his players, um, that there was just something unique and special about this man. And uh, that made him, a lot of the guys kind of made them want to run through a wall for him. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to say, well, you were talking about a lot about how he was kind of ahead of his time um, using that attention to detail in terms of keeping stats, you know, hustle stats before it was cool, you know, charting that stuff, being meticulous in the foam room, um, instilling that culture. And also I was impressed and I knew it was already kind of coming in, but you go from a Lakers roster with, you know, Magic Johnson, James Worthy, Byron Scott, of course, Krim Dujabar, um, all this time. And then you go from that to a, a Knicks team that was markedly different, not only in play style, um, obviously in talent level, you know, you're looking at, of course, Ewing, but also like uh, Charles Oakley at the time you still had, um, I'm forgetting his name now, Mark Jackson as well, you know, and this was a team that was just nine day different. Mark Jackson wasn't the, the same Mark Jackson. He wasn't a Rick Pitino in the late eighties. It's, you know, he kind of like, I, I kind of fell off a little bit. He kind of had a resurgence there, but he wasn't that guy. Um, I think it's fair to say Gerald Wilkins, guys like that. And so for him to kind of come in, I think uh, credit to him for like kind of digging back into his roots, which is why I appreciated the insight to his childhood, because it's like, okay, at first glance, you look at Riley and go, how can we go from that team, you know, Showtime, Glitz of Glamour to this like grinded out, you know, muck type of team. But like, that's the kind of person that he was in terms of his work ethic um, and just how he was brought up. So it was really just kind of, 
going back home in a weird sense while still having, you know, the New York effect with the Armani suits and the slick back hair and everything. Yeah, that was very interesting to research and learn about, you know, because he did have such an image, you know, the the, the Armani suits and the slick back hair. And he was he was appearing on like the cover of Vogue magazine and he was, you know, <laughs> Mr. Fashionable. And you got the sense he was almost like this, you know, Hollywood pretty boy. And then like, but then you dig in and you're like, no, wait a minute, that was all that was just a front, man. Yeah. He, he is, you know, he's he's a tough guy. He's a mm-hmm. tough guy at heart. He's a blue collar, hardworking guy. And even just things, you know, guys like certain guys, you know, get the reputation of like gym rats, like, you know, Thibodeau's like that now or like a Van Gundy or or uh, Eric Spolstra, guys who are, you know, hear how they're, you know, they're, they're just watching film 24-7 and consumed by basketball. And, you know, Riley got the sense that, yeah, he coaches, but then, he, you know, he goes out with his Hollywood friends and, you know, has a good time. That That's kind of the image. But no, he's one of those guys. He's yeah. he's he's a Thibodeau. He's a he's a Spolstra. He just happens to he just likes to slick back his hair and wear really nice clothes. Like he just uh, but he is he's a gym rat. And that was kind of cool to to get to understand that. And I think I think that's one of the many reasons that a lot of the, that the players were drawn to him and, and follow his lead. And that was really kind of cool to kind of dig in. You're right, his versatility, the fact that he backed it up. And like you said, he was real. It was really yeah. fun to see that. Right. Like you just mentioned, this was a front, the whole putting on of him being, you know, Mr. Style in the profile and like, right. yeah, element <laughs> of that. But like, that's not him. Um, right. It's like looking from that to kind of the roster that Riley inherits. You know, he comes over, you know, the Knicks get um, Ewing, of course, to sign the dotted line and stay with them. And so now they're trying to build this roster out. And so kind of we'll start with the, the pieces that were already there when he first came. Um, well, just about, which would be like, um, of course, two of one of my favorite guys, Anthony Mason, um, I think he's an underappreciated player, John Star- um, John Starks, Greg Anthony, uh, the Knicks had made a trade with the Suns in 91, I think trade with Jared Mustaf, um, Trent Tucker, and a second round pick uh, for Xavier McDaniel, another guy I loved uh, watching back in retrospect. Um, so you kind of have these pieces here, Riley at the helm, big and ready to go, kind of whatever you want to kind of go into around these other guys. Um, I guess we can kind of start with Mason and Starks. They shared a little bit of that blue collar, like, you know, where do you know kind of their upbringing and the bouncing they had to do just around, you know, playing basketball over Starks, you know, playing a game right after his wedding, you know, Um, just Mason going through everything he went through, like the personalities and experiences these guys had um, prior to joining the Knicks that kind of led to helping that image that New York started to inherit. Yeah. You know, it was, uh, Starks had been there the year before Riley got there, uh, yeah. but in a pretty small role. And Mason had wasn't. He was in, you know, he'd been all over the place and he was in training camp. And I think Riley, that was the interesting relationship, but Riley loved him right away, really. Him and Starks. Um, and they kind of became, you know, along with Oak and 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 Patrick became the 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 heart and soul of that team. Um they were, and I always think it's a lot of the reason that those teams were so loved because those guys weren't, you know, these, you know, they weren't McDonald's all Americans. They weren't, they weren't these huge prospects. They just worked and worked and worked and worked um, until they got a shot. And then once they got a shot, they just kicked the door and, and they just kept working. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that kind of became the, the character of that team. You know, it, you touched on it before the different styles of, of coaching and, you know, I think Riley, a lot of it was that he got to New York and he was like, okay, well, I, you know, everyone thought he was going to do Showtime in New York, but he didn't, you know, Magic Johnson was the greatest fast break point guard that's ever lived. Like he, he didn't have that in New York. He didn't have a, a forward like James who could run the floor like James Worthy. Um, 
he had a lot of big physical guys, Oak and Mace and Patrick and X-Man. Those guys were bangers. And he, so he played to the strength of his players and um, yeah, X-Man was a big pickup who they got right before the season. Um, had a huge playoffs in his first year, his only year in New York. Um, but the, you know, the character of that team quickly became our right, defense and toughness. Yeah. Yeah, kind of taking that identity on. And like you said, uh, shifting to the personnel because you don't have that type of free-flowing offensive weapons that you did. Um, yeah. And I guess, I guess going from that alone, we got to touch on Oakley for a minute. Uh, I always thought Oakley was quite a character. I mean, even before, you know, learning more about the, the recent Garden stuff and his relationship with Dolan, just watching with the big three, um, you know, someone – his longevity career-wise actually enabled me to see him, but it wasn't with the Knicks jersey. It was with the Raptors, so right. <laughs> totally different time, tail end of his career there. But he was quite the character. Kind of go into him a little bit in just terms of kind of, I mean, nice and open and also going to knock a person out over some cards. Like, he was um, he was that guy. <laughs> fascinating. He's a fascinating guy, yeah. By the way, he, he's, he wrote a book. He's got a book coming out in February, I think. Whoa. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, he is. Uh, it, was, it was great because every everybody I talked to had a, an Oakley story. And one, you just, you know, I talked to close to 100 people. Everyone would at some point, you know, come up with an Oakley story to the point that I just started asking people, OK, what's your best Oakley story? And uh, and, you know, 70 percent of those stories were about what a badass he is, just how tough he is and, you know, crazy he is and uh, violent he could be. And about 30% of those stories were about how he's just the sweetest guy in the world. And wow. he would do, he, he would do anything for a teammate. He would do anything for a friend just little things, you know, like I just, I talked to the, the former ball boy and he told me how like Oak, when he had his eighth grade dance, Oak gave him his, his car and a driver to take him to the dance. Wow. I guess he was always, and that was just one of many stories like that, you know, where he was just doing um, these beautiful gestures for people uh, just out of the kindness of his heart. And then the next day he'd just beat the crap out of somebody at practice for no reason. You know, yeah. just, just <laughs> an, elbow to the, an elbow to the mouth for no reason. Like, yeah, he, yeah, he is, he's a fascinating guy. Um, always was, always is, I think, but he had one thing I got, he had tremendous respect from his teammates um, yeah. because uh because he, he laid it all on the line. He laid it out there, you know, and he backed up his talk and, and he was real. Yeah. You know, he was real. And he would, if he, he'd get in your face, he, he was a guy he'd get in your face if you weren't practicing hard enough. And you know what? You took it because he was Oak and you know that he was practicing hard enough to mm-hmm. talk to, to you about that. that. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent, definitely. I I kind of want to touch for a second on his relationship with Patrick Ewing because it seems increasingly antagonistic over the last couple of years. And in my mind, I'm like, oh, that was weird. They must have been such good friends, and then you know, kind of had a major falling out. And, and the way you describe it, like they worked well together, but they weren't actually friends in that sense already. They were just good work partners, right? Yeah, yeah. I think they were. You know, I think they were friends. You know, the way it was put to me was uh, they never went out for a meal, just the two of them. You know, okay. and they were they were they were together, you know, and they played together for 10 years. They yeah. were co-captains for many years. You would think once. So they just got a sandwich together. They never did. Wow. Well, they did plenty of times with other people mm-hmm. and they were cool. You know, they just they were friends. They weren't close friends. They weren't good friends. There was a lot of respect there uh, both ways. Um, I think uh, I think, you know, people I talked to, I think there was a little jealousy on on Oak's part mm-hmm. um, because Patrick 
was the guy and you know he and and he got all the shots and he got all the money and he got all the press and i think there was a little jealousy on that part but but they got along they got along very well throughout their career it's been a little sad to see what's gone on the last few years and yeah. and it's it's been very one-sided it's oak just yeah. taking shot after shot of patrick patrick yeah got to do it um, why do you think that is I, I think I, I I'm pretty confident I know where that is. I you know I talked to Oak man when I interviewed <laughs> Oak for the book. Oak is like Oak talks about what you know. Oak is Oak, so he talks okay. about what he wants to talk about. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to steer him back to the '90s, and all he wants to talk about is the the you know the, the Dolan incident and things that have happened since and this and that. And and I'm like you know I, you know you can't get Oak to do anything he doesn't want to do so i'm not going to talk about something he doesn't want to talk about. Yeah. but he told but he told me straight up he said he said he was very hurt that patrick didn't come to his defense when everything went down with dolan he was like wow. patrick played with me for 10 years he was like we were like brothers you know we always had each other's back and he said and this guy's coming out he goes patrick knows he goes i don't see patrick a lot anymore but you know patrick knows i'm not an alcoholic and this guy's going and calling me an alcoholic and Patrick couldn't come out and say, "Hey, I know Oak forever. He's not an alcoholic." Like, he, yeah. so he was. So the things he's saying now, I'm not saying Oak doesn't believe them. I think yeah. I actually, th- I actually think there's some truth in some of the things he said about Patrick. Um, <laughs> but I think, I think it's coming. I think it's coming from a place of hurt. I think he was very, he was very hurt about that. That makes sense. And that gives some additional context because I was, I'm glad I c- could get some uh, additional information there because I was stunned. I'm like, okay, like that's out of nowhere it felt out of right. nowhere you know right. what i mean yeah 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 and this like kind of makes it so that it doesn't like justify it 100 but it definitely gives you some more added okay you understand know, it. exactly yeah. and if you're speaking some ways yeah. it hurts you're just like you know like, like you said that, that's that's my guy i mean we've, we've done right. this like yeah use your name right. because like you said they, you know they've both been retired for many years you know yeah. while while all of a sudden we just start firing these shots and i think that's i think that's why <laughs> okay that makes sense. I appreciate it. Like, I'm like, it's not like you and was Charles Barkley, you know, no, yeah. like, they had a much better relationship, I thought. Right. <laughs> All right. But going from there, I wanted to pause for a sec. Um, and Tom, but it's my personal favorite. I had to get my guy in there, Xavier M. Daniels. Um, just, he seems just so cool, man. I mean, the nickname, the X-Men, kind of a comic yeah. guy, so that, that appeals to me. The shaved head, um, the West Matthews incident, you know, the Lakers, <laughs> someone who, you know, kind of a high flyer, someone who shot the ball decently well, um, came to the Knicks and made a pretty significant impact, um, and then had a um, an interesting kind of falling out. I don't even want to say falling out, but just the way that it came where the Knicks kind of went in and said, okay, our goal is to re-sign McDaniels. He, you know, had a really good impact um, for our team, and then they kind of said, okay, we're not going to do that right now. Like, kind of go into this, like I said, the curious loss of McDaniel to the Knicks. Yeah, I'm glad you brought it up because Nick has like myself who remember, I, I mean, people remember that season that he had so fondly and, um, and, and, and we're so upset. Like, that's a lot of big what ifs. Like, people still said, I mean, do you think the Knicks would have won the championship the next year if they kept X Men? Mm-hmm. Of course, maybe. I mean, I, you know, I don't know the answer. But um, <laughs> I mean, I would he have been blah like Charles Smith? I don't know. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, X Men. Uh, you know, X-Men was a great player early in his career with Seattle. He, I think, made a couple of all-star teams, um, 20-point-a-game score. Hurt his knee pretty bad and wasn't quite the same after that. And uh, that's why they traded him to Phoenix, and then Phoenix traded him to New York. Um, but he had a bit of a resurgence that year in New York, and especially in the playoffs, and particularly against the Bulls. He was phenomenal against the Bulls. Uh, 
he was in in Scotty's head big time. Um, <laughs> and, and he played him, he played him pretty much evenly and really, really got in his head. And I talked to X about that. He said, he said, he said, Scotty was a great matchup for me. And he was very open. He was like, you know, the NBA is a game of matchups. And he said, I I had the the athleticism to kind of keep up with him on the perimeter, but I was much stronger and I could bang with him down low. And one thing Scotty didn't like was to bang down low. Yeah. And and he said, you know, most small forwards weren't doing that. And mm-hmm. I bothered him that I could. And he said, he said, he was just a great matchup for me. He said, he said, James Worthy kicked my ass. He said, Mark Aguirre kicked my ass. X-Men mm-hmm. said this. He said, I just, wow. it was a good matchup. Very me. candid. Yeah. Yeah. But, but Pippen was, and everybody saw that. And so, you know, it seemed like X was going to be a big part of the future. He was a free agent. The next plan was back. The deal was you could go over the salary cap to re-sign your own players, but you couldn't go over to to sign someone else. So basically their plan was, all right, we're going to put X on the back burner and we're going to sign other guys first, trying to add to the roster because we can't sign other teams, free agents. We can't go over the cap to sign other teams, free agents, but we can to retain our own player. So we're like, we'll, we'll put X on the back burner. So they do, and they try. They try to sign Harvey Grant. They tried to do a couple other things, and all of a sudden, it's like September, and they still haven't taken care of X. And he's like, "What's the deal here?" So he starts looking around, and he reaches a deal with Boston. And um, it was interesting to me that X X told me he called Patrick from Boston and said, "Hey, the Celtics made me this offer. I haven't heard from the Knicks yet. What should I do?" And Patrick said to him, "If, if they haven't made you an offer yet, then you gotta." take care of your family. You I know? liked and, that. Yeah. And it was like, you know, it was like a few weeks before training camp and, and uh, he had to go. So I, I think the Knicks were blindsided by that. I think they thought they had an understanding with X that they would take care of him. His view was, well, like, well, I can't wait forever. You know, team salary cap space dries up. I got to get paid. Yeah. Um, the Knicks were also a little reluctant. Like the Nick doctors were very concerned about his knees. And so okay. they were reluctant to pay him what he wanted to get paid. But that's kind of how that played out. Wow. Yeah. When I read that, I, I realized it was abrupt. I didn't know a lot about that. And again, it wasn't a whole lot on the TV, you know, the books that I've read, just kind of, you know, understanding him. So I was like, that was weird. He had a decent year from what I saw in the numbers and, you know, the yeah. games I'd watched. So the process of that was interesting. And that additional context with Patrick Ewing, I thought was really cool too, because you think, okay, just he waited, sound with the Celtics, but no, like it came down to a moment was okay. You know what, what can I do? And the fact that, you know, Ewing probably won him around, but was like, Hey, you know, just as a colleague, in this business, like you got to do what you got to do. Um, yeah. That was, that was important. I thought it was interesting. And yeah, it led to a very interesting what if for sure, because he had a great year. I mean, like you said, I don't even know how good it was, but like looking at that kind of small four position later, um, you kind of see that it was a little bit of a hole. And I guess, I mean, before Mason kind of went in there, but uh, looking at how they attempted to kind of build after the loss of McDaniel, um, it seemed that, you know, the front office were looking for a shooting guard. They like Starks, but, you know, between Starks and I think at the time it was Joe Wilkins, um, kind of inconsistent. I mean, come on, we know Starks. If you know anything about Starks <laughs> as a fan, then, you know, kind of the highs are high and the lows are kind of low. So it looked yeah. like more consistent. I did not know the list of shooting guards they were going after. I thought it was really cool that you had, okay, this was who their targets were initially and then kind of whittled it down. And that included, you know, Sacramento's Mitch Richmond, um, Charlotte's Del Curry, um, you had Dennis Scott, um, who later joined the Knicks, you know, a little bit after when they wanted him from Orlando and how they eventually realized the asking price for those guys is kind of high. And so they kind of circled to Orlando Blackman. But how did, how did that kind of go about where they go? Okay. You know what? And I, 
as a like I said, basketball fan, I ate this up in terms of like, okay, they actually had plans. This wasn't like, oh, we're just wetted the roster. They were trying right. to improve, and you do you just kind of run into, you know, and then the crazy NBA transaction heavy league, league we have now. You know, everyone knows, oh, this guy's on the trade block. This guy's rumored. But back then, yeah. I mean, you didn't really see a lot of that. Right. Exactly. No, you didn't. Um, and yeah, I mean, the, their calculation was basically, they, you know, they said we want to we want to add a significant, you know, we want to we, we need a shooter. That's our big priority. We need a shooter for the reasons you you, you said, you know, uh, Starks and, and Wilkins are very consistent. I don't think they knew yet at that point either that Starks would become quite as good as he did mm-hmm. either. Um, but even so, they needed a shooter and uh but they, they, you know, they wanted a, they wanted to acquire one without giving up one of their core pieces. That was that was the main thing. You know, they didn't want to give up Oak. They didn't want to give up um, Starks. Um, and certainly not Patrick. So, um, so like Richmond, the, the the guys you mentioned, Richmond, Curry, and uh, and Dennis Scott. Like yeah. it, it just, you know, a package of I don't know, Greg Anthony and draft picks or whatever, just wasn't going to get it done. And, and so they were like, okay, well, how can we improve our shooting without giving up a core piece? And that's how they landed on, on Blackman. Um, but yeah, you know, you think, I mean, a guy like Rich, people always, people say to me a lot, what was, what was missing from those Knicks teams? And it's, you know, 94 was missing. Mitch Richmond was what was missing. <laughs> that's, you know, it needed, you know, they only had one. You look at the players that Patrick played with in his prime, you know, he, he didn't play with a hall of famer. Um, yeah. Oh. And and he never played well. He he did eventually with Alan Houston was a great shooter, but mm-hmm. on the '94 team, the best team, the, the, he didn't have. There wasn't a great shooter. No. Um, and uh, you know, you had Smith and Mason were playing small forward. Really, those guys were really power forwards. Mm-hmm. Were playing small forward, and and Starks was extremely streaky. And uh, and so yeah, they needed a they needed a consistent second scorer with Patrick, mm-hmm. specifically a guy who could shoot. And, uh, yeah, man, I mean, Mitch Richmond would have been perfect. Would have been perfect, exactly. Especially since, like, Blackman, I kind of feel, I mean, we all see, like, when he was acquired by the Knicks and when he retired, that, like, he was kind of toward the end. I think maybe you would probably say, like, sooner than people thought at the time. Yeah, yeah. And I think part of it, he hurt his back soon after he got to New York, and that Mm. kind of sped up the process. But he he was pretty much done when he got back from the back injury and, and. yeah. yeah, which is unfortunate because you kind of go into his career with Dallas, you know, one of the great scores in the 80s. Um, how he yeah. changed his style. You said he was a rim attacker and kind of grew into like a great mid-range shooter. And I thought it was really kind of neat. Like the player, you know, if you had, let's say, 88 Rolando Blackman in that year, you might have been better, you know, considering. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah, I think 88 Rolando Blackman, you win the championship in 94. Yeah. Wow, yeah, just having that yeah. guy. Um, but kind of going from the shooting guard to the point guard spot, I wanted to talk about these guys because it was interesting, you know, the kind of guys who manned the point and kind of came in and out during Ewing's run during those early years. So you had Mark Jackson, um, what, big from 87 when he first got drafted, had a great rookie year, kind of tailed off. And then, of course, you had Doc Rivers come over. Um, Greg Anthony was drafted by the Knicks. Derek Harper, one of my favorites, came over from Dallas later in a trade. Uh, you can kind of take whatever you want to kind of pick at. But those guys I thought were all interesting for the roles they played, good or bad. I mean, Anthony was interesting to me because, you know, class acts kind of on the court yeah. and kind of off the court until he wasn't, you know, it was just very yeah. random and very weird. Um, but yeah, kind of feel free to go into any of these guys. Cause I thought it was very intriguing. Yeah. All interesting personalities, um, <laughs> uh, all tough in their own way. They were all tough, you know, hard nosed guys. Um, all had flaws, you know I mean? Uh, 
Mark Jackson was um, had a couple tremendous gifts. I think his intelligence and his passing were, you know, were off the charts. Mm-hmm. Um, an all time great passer. And, and he knew he knew how to run an offense. He got guys the ball where they needed it. Uh, but he had a couple of big faults too. Uh, I would say his shooting and and his and his feet, his foot speed. Mm. You know, he didn't. The, the foot speed was an issue both sides of the ball. He just wasn't quick enough to really break down a defense. And defensively, teams could exploit him because he he couldn't really stay in front of the quick point guards. Mm. Um, Harper and Doc. Harper and Doc were somewhat similar. Um, guys that looked to score a lot for point guards. Well, maybe more, they weren't as traditional point guard as, say, Mark Jackson. Um, and they were better shooters than Jackson. They were better defenders than Jackson. Um, the one thing all those guys had in common was none of them were, the, none of them had that quickness to consistently get in the paint and create shots for their team. Mm. Um, okay. and they were good. They were all good ball players, you know. Mm-hmm. That was, none of them could really break it. A guy who the Knicks had, who they traded a little before that, Rod Strickland, was yes. like Rod could do that. He was that kind of player. I mean, shit. The Knicks have the, the Knicks. Thirty years later, they still haven't had that kind of point guard. <laughs> that you know, guard. Maybe, yeah. I mean, Marbury. You know, Marbury for a little while, but really, they haven't had that that point guard who could. You know, now a little bit Derrick Rose, hopefully Kemba, but you know, a guy. Mm-hmm. Who could just get into the paint and and create. and create shots or get to the foul line and that kind of thing? So I think they, none of those guys could do that. And they, you know, they all brought a lot to the table. As not to knock them, you know. Yeah. Like Harper, Harper was a great defender. He shot really well in the finals. Um, Anthony was a little bit of a disappointment. You know, I think he was kind of hope they were hoping he was going to be the point guard of the future mm. and fit the mold well with that team. And that he was a really he was an excellent defender. Um, he really got after it tough in that way. Um, but, uh, bad decision maker on, on offense. He just didn't, he just didn't, you know, as smart as Mark Jackson was, he, Anthony just didn't have that gene. He just didn't, you know, the IQ, I think he just didn't know how to, how to run an offense. Um, and so he would take a lot of bad shots and, um, but yeah, I would say if there was something missing from the point guards, it was that. It was that ability to just consistently get in the paint. And and Doc and you know, Doc and Harper did that more, I think, when they were younger. They were both like in their early 30s when they got to the Knicks with, you know, when they were 25, they did get in the paint a little more. Yeah. It was kind of like where you found them, like with the with Mark Jackson and, and Greg Anthony, that just wasn't their type of game, you know, for different reasons. Um, and right. then when by the time you got to Doc Rivers and Derek Harper, it it, it was past tense that right. part of their game at this right. point they're kind of more jump shooting yeah school first so i feel that just a weird kind of time when you got the guards that you wanted for the squad even though they all brought something in their own different way which was kind of unique yeah. um yeah. yeah i really enjoyed that but looking at kind of the next big segment i put it all together just the bulls next clashes i mean I-, I look at it by a series of images 92 you know jordan mcdaniel forehead to forehead 93 child smith game all i gotta say you know 94 uh uh, I'm about to say uh, Herb, or Herbert Davis, but like Hubert, Hubert Davis, Hubert Davis yeah. there you go. Um, kind of what was I put it all together? What was your favorite parts of these clashes? Just kind of community type thing. Oh, <laughs> I know I put it all together. <laughs> I was gonna try to break it down. But I'm like, you know, it's this. Still, it still hurts. No, it still, it still hurts, man. It still hurts. Um, it was, you know, it was, it was always, um, 
I mean, kind of at the heart of it, the, the Bulls, the Bulls are more talented. They were always more talented. You know, people ask, why did, why couldn't the Knicks get over the hump? Why couldn't they beat them? Was it coaching? Was it this? Was it that? No, they were more talented. They just, they, you know, they had maybe <laughs> the great, yeah, they had maybe the greatest player ever. And, uh, and, um, and, and Scotty Pippen, who was just a phenomenal all around player. Uh, and the two of them together, you know, everybody talks about the offense defensively. Those guys would just suffocate you. Um, and take you out of whatever you were doing. And so the Knicks, you know, they kind of knew they, you know, and Riley knew that they didn't have, they couldn't quite match up talent wise. So they had to beat you with physicality and toughness. Kind of like the bad boy Pistons beat the Lakers, you know, in in the late eighties. It was very much. So that was the dynamic. And it was, it was, uh, you know, the Knicks would try and slow the game down and, and make it more physical and ugly. And, um, Man, as a Nick fan, you you just desperately wanted to beat that team. Desperately. Yeah. Couldn't. And it was really the year, you know, 93, everybody thought was the year. We really thought, you know, the Knicks won 60 games. They had the number one seed. Uh, it's it, They looked like the better team a lot of the regular season. Uh, Chicago might have been coasting a little bit because they could. Um, but, <laughs> yeah. but everybody thought that was the year. And then 94 was – you know, we beat them at seven and, and it was uh, it was exciting. But I know as a fan, I felt like something was missing because Michael wasn't there. Michael wasn't there. It wasn't the same yeah. kind of edge to it that it would have been. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, to his credit, Sky Pippen performed admirably. You know, the Bulls had kind of um, restructured in a, in a solid way, given the loss of Jordan with Ron Harper and other guys there. But it yeah. wasn't, like you said, the same thing. So looking at that between 92 and 93, uh, really, you look at the Knicks 93 as like the best chance of taking down that Bulls team. Yeah, I think I think the 93 team was even better than the 94 team that the Knicks that went to the finals, game seven, of the finals. Wow. I think um, um, I, I think that 92, that the 93 team was just uh not much. There's something. I think they were. Just, there was a, just a little more cohesion. They were just playing a little better basketball. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, they ran into they ran into Michael. Ran into Michael, <laughs> man. He was. I mean, yeah. If, if it helps for the Knicks, he was in front of a lot of great teams during that time. But like, especially yeah. the Knicks fan, I can only imagine because. You know, at least in the West, you could talk yourself into like most teams did now with LeBron or the Warriors, you know, in these days with, okay, I'm in the Eastern Conference. You know, I can get around that. I don't got to worry about it until the finals. Or, right. you know, unless you're in the East, you got to go through LeBron. Or in the West, you know, you got to go through the Warriors at some point. I think at this point, as good as the Knicks were, you had to go through Chicago. And so yeah. you're always looking at it. And I love that you kind of planned that out, um, you know, especially with 94, 95. Um, you know, even while Michael was gone, like the Knicks' focus was like on Chicago, even 96. Like that was. That yeah, was their great white way, regardless. Yeah. yeah, great team success, all that, congrats. But, like, we're looking at Chicago, and I thought that was really interesting, um, yeah. especially when my, Miami comes later in the picture, and they're like, oh, who are you? Like, you know, it's kind of funny <laughs> there. But yeah. um, looking at that to kind of the end of the Rouse era, um, his departure, kind of messy. Um, you know, him and Dave Tech's relationship there. Uh, just kind of talk about that. And also, like, do you like, blame anyone for the fallout there? Did it kind of just reach its the end of its course was it you know i feel like riles with the exception of miami and even then he kind of did have a run its course as a coach where he just has like a shelf life is that something that may have happened in new york i think so a little bit i think some of his players felt that way a little bit i think he just you know cracked the whip so hard for four years that guys were kind of it was tough almost like you know there's some coaches that are 
more suited for college than pro because college you have that turnover every few years you know it's new guys new guys to to work that hard like a Nick Saban you think of you know yeah um I I don't think he was really comfortable the NFL but uh but yeah like I so I think he did with his players a little bit it's hard to say anyone's at fault you know I I think Mm -hmm. Riley's Riley's somewhat at fault I mean he was I mean well, he was negotiating with another team while he was still in a contract with the Knicks, which is illegal. You're not supposed to yeah. do that. So yeah. he definitely gets definitely gets blamed for that. You know, <laughs> as far as the, you know, the relationship breaking down with Czech is, I think, uh, I think they're both to blame. You know, the ego. There was there was ego there um, both with both of them, and I think they both thought it was their team that they were the reason the team was successful, and and um, I don't know. I you know a lot of Knicks fans just hated Riley forever for that. I hated him when it went down. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I get it. I mean, I, best was a weird business. Like basically, um, you know, he, 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 he wanted a better opportunity somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he got, yeah, you he went to Miami, masters. they gave him ownership. Yeah. They gave him ownership of the franchise. Like mm-hmm. what I, you know, I don't, if you're, if you're a, you know, whatever you are, if you're a, 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 a banker and another firm offers you more money, you, you go to the better job. You go there. Yeah. <laughs> you go to, like I so I don't I don't I don't really begrudge him for that. You know, mm-hmm. he, it's it's not like he if he just went to Miami to be the coach for the same salary he was making in New York, I, you know that would have been more of an issue. Yeah. Um, but like he went to a better situation for himself. Obviously, it worked out tremendously well for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, but I think you know it was, it was ego with with Riley and 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 Chekets. But I and I think some of the Knicks were pissed off because a lot of the things that. Riley always preached about putting the team before yourself and all those things. Like he kind of, he didn't really back that up with his own actions. Yeah. Say one thing to another. Yeah. So I I think there was some bitterness with that. Um, And then, and then of course the the bitterness just intensified so much because we met them in the playoffs four years in a row. And so that, that, and in, you know, yeah, Yeah, of course, of course. And I really, um, well, kind of looking on that, like, I think that for for Riley, I mean, look, it's been almost 30 years. He's still with the organization. Like, you know, you look at it in that way, like it ended up working out well for him. You know, I just yeah. as someone who wasn't around during like that part, like as a fan, I appreciate your perspective on like, I guess the sense of betrayal that you kind of feel by that. Everybody felt betrayed. Absolutely. And the way it went down too, how he faxed it, you know, he faxed in the resignation. Yeah. It was like, come on, dude. Like he faxed it and just left the country. Like, come on. Seriously, like, man. What are you doing, man? <laughs> um, and you know what? It, that really worked against him because I think that allowed Chekets and the Knicks to control the narrative. You know, like, I mean, he literally faxed it in and then left for, I think, Greece. He left the country, Riley, and, and, and wasn't responding to interview requests and this and that. So so you have the, you know, the Knicks and Chekets are sucking up all the oxygen. They're getting all the interviews. They're, you know, putting their spin on it. Yep. And, and that certainly made certainly made Riley look worse of course. Um, than, than he did. But, mm-hmm. you know, it happens all the time in, in every profession. You know, yep. there's clash of personalities and, you know, people are at a job for a certain amount of time and it runs its course for whatever reason and you move mm-hmm. on. It's, and, it's yeah. you know, I was a kid too. You know, as a kid, you don't understand that. You're no. furious and, pan- yeah. and fans are, you know, as fans, we're not always logical. We're, we're passionate. So we were exactly. furious. I mean, <laughs> furious. Like, Betrayal is, betrayal is the right word. Betrayal is a strong 
I mean, that's a strong thing, right? Betrayal. Yeah. And you don't take that lightly. And nah. so we we did, we felt betrayed. Mm. And there was a tremendous amount of anger there that, wow. that a lot of people have, are still not over. Yeah. You know, <laughs> all these years later. It's funny, man. Like you said, the experience of a fan is hilarious. And speaking of experiences, yeah. I love the very next chapter of the book, the Don Nelson experience. It was so <laughs> quick. Like, I, yeah. Again, someone who didn't know a whole lot about this at all, like next to nothing. I knew he coached for the Knicks, and I said, hmm, that's kind of odd because I remember him for like, you know, these unorthodox lineups and these point forwards right. and, you know, the Bucks and the Mavericks. And the Knicks was like a speed bump on the pro basketball reference, like transaction kind of list. You're like, whoa, that's jarring. But there was next to nothing I saw about it. Right. So getting that chapter was like a panacea, just being able to kind of go in there and, and kind of find out more about it. And mind you, I love the beginning where, you know, Riley's gone, you know, Chad gets Grunfeld trying to find a new coach. They're like, okay, we can't have a young guy. We have teams that we have a team that's experienced to win. Now we have to focus on that. So we're looking immediately for vets. They went for Chuck Daly. Right. Felt very interesting. Um, someone who had experience of viewing, you know, the dream team, stuff like that. But, you know, he had said, hey, I'm 64. I'm a little too old for this. So they moved on. Um, and then finally kind of centered around Chris Ford and Don Nelson. Now, given how much I knew about Chris Ford and his situation in Boston, I'm kind of glad I didn't go that way. But Don Nelson was definitely interesting, especially given what he was known for, that he was already known for by the time he was hired by the Knicks, and right. the fact that that roster, man, a little, you know, round, round what? They say a, a round peg, a little square peg, round hole. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. I have a bunch of those all the time. But basically, yeah. that's what it was. But I just wanted to kind of narrow it down to just you describing the Don Nelson experience as best as you can. Um, I loved, for one thing, the wrinkle on defensively. Hey, we're going to keep what worked. That's not my thing. Boom. But offensively, we're going to try to do that point forward thing. And it was really cool to kind of have the dynamic of Anthony Mason kind of adopting more of that, who's already such a good passer um, for right. a big position, right. uh, especially in an era where, you know, outside of Don Nelson and his uh, his uh, point guard, point forward experiments wasn't really being done a lot. But to kind of have that transition where, you know, some of the guys were kind of rankling at the fact that the offense was changing. Anthony Mason's like, hey, guys, like, let's be a team about this. Like, you know, no one can benefit him. Let's all follow what coach says. This is my this might work for us. And I just thought it was a hilarious dynamic. So kind of go into that as much as you want to. There. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. I mean, it was it, the Nelly experience was was pretty wild. Um, he's an interesting guy. He's kind of out there a bit, uh, I think, as a person and, and as a coach. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> You know, it was, it was, I talked to Ernie Grunfeld about it, who's the general manager, and, and Grunfeld had played for Nelly in, in Milwaukee. Um, and so I knew a lot about him and had a very good relationship with him. And talking to him made me understand a little bit better what, what the thinking was, you know, and, and you, you know, you're exactly right. It was a square peg into a round hole, but it was kind of like, I don't know, you see that in sports sometimes when, when, when guys, when you have like a really, disciplinarian coach and and he works the guy like we're saying riley kind of you know worked the guys so hard that that the the thinking was maybe they need maybe we need to go in the other direction and lighten up a little bit Mm -hmm. and you know again again square peg and around hole you know the knicks were a defensive team and nelly was notoriously an offensive coach Mm -hmm. so what well you know grunfeld explained like we had consistently one of the best defenses in the league we had a number of really good defensive players. We had veterans who we felt would maintain those defensive habits. And we needed some, you know, we're good on the defensive side of the ball where we were struggling was offense. So we needed some ingenuity and we needed something more than just dump it into Patrick and get out of the way. Like we need, we needed some creativity. Um, Nelly took it a little too far for a lot of people's <laughs> interests. Um, you know, Nelly, I think, 
some of it was personality clashes with you with Ewing, and he had issues with Starks that went back years, actually. Wow, um, warriors days, right? Yeah, and you know it's hard. I, I think I think Nelly was the wrong coach. She was the wrong hire. I, I kind of understood, like I said, talking to Grunfeld, why they they went with him, but. Um, the Knicks were a very veteran team and they were kind of set in their ways and they had won. They had been very successful playing a certain way. Um, and so they didn't want to make big changes. Um, I think, I think the Knicks, the players are a little bit to blame as well, because I think they were, they were stubborn and weren't willing to try some of his new things. Mm-hmm. Um but I don't know. I mean, how do you how do you come into a franchise and the first thing you do is basically take the ball out of the franchise player's hands? Yeah. Right. I mean, that's never that's just not going to go over well. And you could kind of get it in the sense that, like, yes, Mason was a better passer than Patrick mm-hmm. out of the ball, um, and Patrick was a much better shooter than Mason. So mm-hmm. in, in a you know in one regard, it made sense for Patrick to kind of be at the elbow instead of on the block and let Mason operate down there, but. You, I, I, I don't you just, it's not the way the game was played. Like it's kind of yeah, like the yeah. complete opposite for a team that made its living off of exactly. kind of get to Patrick. Exactly. Yeah. And you even said like, it was cool that, you know, Patrick, who you described as someone who, you know, very confident in his abilities, maybe not the most, um, he was kind of used to being praised. Um, at least among the coaching staff that, and he's like, Hey, you know, you kind of got to be a better passer. He's like, well, what? Like I passed perfectly <laughs> fine. And like, if you look, anyone who watches Patrick Ewing, is like, no, like he was not a good passer. <laughs> right. And that, and that, right. And that's why I say that, you know, I think the Knicks are a little bit to blame because you have to be willing to make changes and you have mm-hmm. to be willing to try new things and you have to be willing to accept criticism. Certainly. Um, so mm-hmm. they were, they were to blame somewhat as well, but, that. uh, I don't know. Very interesting. No, I think you described it best at the very beginning. You know, a simple quote at the beginning of the chapter by Don Nelson, which is basically, it says, um, I quote, it may be as simple a situation as I was the wrong guy for the job. <laughs> and I love that. Like, 100%. Like, looking back on that, it is what it is. So, yeah. I, I, yeah. I just had a lot of fun with that chapter because I'm like, yes, we finally get a moment to, like, center in on this one blip of a year, you know, a meek finish and then we go to Van Gundy, and I guess that's where I kind of go with you. Uh, the ascension of Van Gundy being kind of, you know, interesting. Kind of tell me more about the process of coming on, um, the relationship that you have with the front office that Karana really extended his entire tenure with New York, um, and just that little uh, dynamic there. Yeah, he, uh, you know, he was, we talked about image with Riley. I mean, uh, Van Gundy was very much, uh, you know, his physical attributes uh, very much crafted his image as well um, in a much more negative light than, than Riley. <laughs> I mean, he was, you know, Van Gundy is short. He, he was balding. Um, he, you know, all the lines, people said he looked like an accountant. He looked like a mortician. He looked at all that, all that. And he did. Yeah, I mean, he, he, did. he did, you know, and he didn't, he didn't give a damn about, you know, he, what, how, you know, he probably bought this, the cheapest suit on the rack. Like mm-hmm. that just wasn't his deal. Um, so he didn't look like a coach. Uh, and, uh, and, and I think to an extent, the Knicks never thought of him as a coach, as a head coach, you know, I think they mm-hmm. thought, Oh, he's an excellent assistant. He's a, he's a gym rat. He'll watch tremendous amount of film and he'll be kind of a career assistant guy. Um, and then when they fired Nelly, they, they gave him the opportunity. Uh, I talked to Chekets about it. He, he was very open. He, he said, there was he thought no way would would Van Gundy keep that job like he the, like wow. Jackets viewed it strictly as an interim thing. Mm-hmm. Um, he planned at the end of the year to to go out and get another big name coach. Um, 
talked to Mike Wise, who wrote for the New York Times. He told me he had dinner with Chekets right before the playoffs that that year. And Chekets was talking about some of the names that he was going to go after. And like he, in his mind, like he was like Van Gundy was gone. Um, wow. And like, and he was like, he said to Wise straight up, he was like, yeah, he'll, you know, he'll be all right. He'll get a, you know, a co- head coaching job in college or assistant job somewhere else and blah, blah, blah. And they, he, Chekets thought they were going to lose to the Cavs in the first round and they beat the Cavs and, uh, and a lot, and the Knicks, Ewing and, and Starks and Oakley all really loved Van Gundy. And, um, and because uh, he had proven himself to them, you know, the guys in the locker room knew, you know, yeah. he'd been there for years and they all work with him and like this guy's legit, you know, he is the real deal. He's he's a really good basketball coach mm-hmm. in a way that people in the front office hadn't really been exposed to. And um, and so he Ben Gundy kind of had to overcome the, the image of him to get that shot. Yeah. And I like, like you said, he endeared himself uh, to the roster. I mean, they knew who he was and who he was about. Um, in later years, you know, until his eventual departure, Ewing would kind of tie himself in his future with the Knicks to, you know, Van Gundy. And I thought it was right. really interesting, that ultimate sign of loyalty. Like, well, if he's gone, I'm gone. You know, and yeah. you don't, I mean, especially in this day and age, you do not see that. Um, no. You know, the coaches that stick around are almost an institution unto themselves, um, independent of whatever players think about them. Um, and right. they have the ultimate loyalty from, you know, management, the front office. And right. you don't see that guy they really go to bat for in that way. Um, and I find that very interesting, especially given that, I mean, it wasn't like it happened a lot back in the day, but that it happened to that degree in New York of all places. Really, yeah. Really and, and you fact you add in that it's not like they won a championship together. No, you know, it's not like they had reached <laughs> the, the mountaintop together, but mm-hmm. he still believed in him that much and had that much loyalty to him. Yeah. Definitely. Really interesting. Um, now we get to like one of my favorite, one of my favorite chapters of this book. And, and that's because like the inner um, NBA 2K kind of GM guy in me, uh, what, what to do, you know, when you're trying to rebuild a team or you're in a different situation on um, the summer of 1996, I just have to read the first passage just because like you're talking about how big it was for New York. You know, they had 10 million in salary cap space. They had all these guys available. I wasn't even aware. I mean, we talk about free agency. Um, people got like, you know, I think what, two years ago, there was like a big one. Um, I think the KD one, you had uh, 2016, but for all the wrong reasons, you had the 2010 free agency, you know, with LeBron and, you know, Kobe and, and Dirk and all these other guys, whether they switched teams or not. And so in 96, it was not aware, but you had Jordan, Shaq, Alonzo Mourning, Reggie Miller, Gary Payton, Tim Hardaway, Dikemi Mutombo, um, Juwan Howard, Alan Houston, Latrell Sprewell, Kenny Anderson as well. Then you also had guys uh, on the trade block like Barkley, uh, Charles Barkley and Larry Johnson, which was interesting. And then on top of that, the 96 draft, which went kind of deep. I mean, I, I'm just going to say right now, people compare the 96 and 2003 draft. In my mind, 2003 draft, you probably go like six players deep that were like really, really good. 96, you got people drafted 15th that are like Hall of Famers. So like, I, I definitely look at that and you look at the Knicks in a very interesting spot um, with their roster at the time where you're still, you know, running with the core that you started with in 91. Um, but these guys are a little older now. You know, Ewing, when he was testing for agency, was 29 back when this book started, middle of the way there, and he's middle of his 30s. So, you know, kind of describe the the process there for the Knicks targets with just the tremendous amount of talent that was available there. Yeah, I'm glad you I'm glad you, you summarized that up as you did. It's a fact that someone you could write a hell of a book on just the 96 offseason, right? <laughs> wow, because yeah. it, because it was, you know, because it was uh i i agree it, it, you know it was, it was arguably that uh, i'm trying to think 84 draft was really good yeah. jordan barkley lajuan but but uh, but 96 was certainly mm-hmm. one of the top five you know three or four drafts ever yeah. and oh, you I, had this uh-huh. crazy free agent class um it was also at a time when the money 
really started to explode. If, if you remember in 98, they, they locked the players out. Yeah. That was very much a reaction to that 96 draft, that 96 free agency class when wow. the, the contracts first started to get over $100 million, The owners started to be like, whoa, whoa, this is too much. <laughs> Slow down, yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> so it was a crazy summer. Uh, and then, of course, you had the Barkley and, and Larry Johnson trades. It, it was a crazy summer for the league as a whole. And then the Knicks, you know, as you said, they had 10 million in cap space to put that in perspective, that that'd probably be like 40 or $50 million in, in today's cap. Right. Wow. I mean, today, $10 million doesn't sound like very much now, no, but back then, you know, it was enough to get, it was enough to get like one, at least one max player okay. and, and, and one more other, you know, very good player, type guy. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, that was, and you had all those people available. It was uh, the Knicks, their, their first priority was a shooting guard. Um, for the reasons we talked about before, they desperately wanted a shooter. They needed a point guard too, because at that point, Harper Harper was a free agent and he was getting old at that point. He was yeah. slowing down. And so they needed a shooting guard and a point guard, but but uh, shooting guard was their number one priority. And so their order was their first their first uh, choice was, was Allen Houston. Everyone thought they were going to go after Reggie. Um, yeah. He was actually their second their second option wow. uh, with Steve and Steve Smith was their third option. Um, wow. So they, uh, <clears throat> yeah, they, they had a, they had a meeting with Reggie. They had a meeting set up, but um, they'd given Houston the offer and, you know, basically said, you know, if, if you don't take it, we're going to sign someone else and, mm-hmm. and the offer it. Yeah, and I, I like the perspective on Houston himself. You go into him a little later in, in another chapter just about his background and such, but um, just specifically how he thought that he was going to go back to Detroit, kind of like the core that he was forming with Grant Hill, um, Lindsey Hunter, and that this whole free agency was really more of a negotiating tactic, kind of get more money from Detroit than it was to actually leave, but that he didn't, uh, it, it was kind of, I had never heard about this before, but basically he didn't feel that he was appreciated by Detroit, specifically Grant Hill and others to kind of say, hey, you know, we want you back, this and that. And then when he did go with the Knicks, the Pistons were like, what the hell? Like, we, we thought you're part of this group. And I mean, he wasn't invited to Hill's wedding. That, look, it was yeah. interesting that this, like, who, who knew? You know? Right? Wow. It's a lot. It's, you get a lot, it's amazing with a lot of these guys, you know, their egos are so big. And it, a lot of times it just comes down to respect. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I think, like, with, uh, with, with Detroit, I think um, they made him an initial offer. And I think they thought they like they had the inside track and they made an initial offer and, and then the, the Knicks made a significantly higher offer. I think Detroit thought, you know, in the end, he'll come back to us and give us a chance to match the offer. But I think when he saw that initial offer, he was insulted and was like, well, they don't care about me. They don't want me back. Screw them. Mm-hmm. And then when the Knicks gave him that nice offer, he he bolted for New York. Wow. I thought that was very, very interesting. Um, considering that, I thought, OK, at first, my mind, I'm like, why not Reggie? You know, you have the history there, but. I didn't, again, wasn't aware of, like, the age. You know, they're all, you bring another guy that, yes, helps with that win-now rotation, but is going to age out just as fast as the rest of them, where Houston kind of, and he did, sort of, kind of bridge the gap there between, you know, yeah. the older the older team and the and the revamped kind of roster that we'll talk about in a minute. Um, Got to talk about Michael Jordan. I, I'd like to kind of go into the creative way the Knicks had kind of configured a, a way to possibly acquire Jordan and also ask you how close was he to actually signing with the Knicks because I thought that was interesting, a nice little bit of a, I guess I want to say cap flex, uh, cap creativity. <laughs> yeah, it was fascinating, and 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 that the league was supposedly willing to uh, the, the league was willing to look the other way and like, accommodate allow, that. Allow, you know, yeah, yeah, allow them to make a special accommodation where the 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 parent company ITT that owned the Knicks they owned a whole bunch of 
different companies, including Sheridan hotels. And the thinking was maybe he would do like a promotional thing for Sheridan on the side where they would pay him for that to make up because the Knicks, you know, he was, they were talking $30 million a year, 25, $30 million a yeah, year. And the Knicks said, he said had 10 million in cap space. So um, yeah. And it, it was similar with Michael. Michael had felt he'd been underpaid for a long time in Chicago. He had, he uh-huh. absolutely had. And again, it was the respect thing. He was kind of like, well, if Jerry Reinsdorf, you know, if he lowballs me, if he doesn't show me the respect, I'm out of here. I'm yeah. going to New York. And uh, <clears throat> you could see, I mean, you could kind of see it, right? I mean, if you went to New York with that roster, he could have kept winning championships. Yeah. New York City, he was very close with Oakley. Uh, they yeah. still are. He was good friends with Patrick. Yeah. Um, it would have been a, a great situation for him. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I don't think he was ever that tied to Chicago. You know, it's not like he, don't, like he doesn't live there anymore. He's, no. You know, he never lived there, really, except <laughs> during, the, during the season. Yeah. Uh, he, cons- he considers himself a Carolina guy, not a Charlotte guy. Oh, uh, not a, not a uh, Chicago, Chicago guy. Yeah. Um, and so I, I don't know. I mean, I think I, I think if he if he really if he really felt disrespected, if if, if they really lowballed him, I think I think he might have left. Wow. And that's kind of crazy, crazy to think. Yes. Like you said, I look at, you know, you think of Michael, you think Bulls. I don't even remember uh, the Wizards. I'm just kidding. I do. But like, yeah, no, no, of course. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So that's really funny. Um, And I guess we got to close with the 96 with just the, the moves. Um, the, And you add Alan Houston, you add Chris Childs, but you also add um Larry Johnson, talked him before, at the expense of Anthony Mason. Kind of the follow of that for Mason and, and just kind of how that went down. Yeah, I remember from a personal standpoint being crushed. They traded Mason. Mason was my guy. I was, mm-hmm. and a lot of New Yorkers were. Uh, Larry Johnson was interesting because some people were really excited. He was a huge name. Um, I, you know, I don't think people now can see. No, I don't think people know how good Larry Johnson was. I mean, Larry, yeah. young Larry Johnson was a beast. Grandma, I mean, he was a beast. I mean, Zion reminds me of him. You know, some that like uh-huh. that kind of. You know, I mean, Zion's not that tall, you know, small forward. LJ was like 6'5", you know, 6'6", like a six, you know, an under for them that was undersized for power forward, um, but could just jump out of the building, you know, and strong as hell. And that was kind of like, that was LJ. Um, and then he hurt his back and, and he wasn't nearly the same player anymore, but he could still score. Um, and that was a lot of, I think the Knicks were, were looking, they were looking for more scoring, they were kind of tired of Mason. Mason was a headache. Uh, I love Mace, um, but he, <laughs> he caused problems. He caused problems. Coaches, he caused problems. Man- management, he got arrested a couple times. They were like, all right, this guy's like, this guy's trouble. There was some of that. <laughs> you said there. they were afraid of that 3 a.m. phone call. Yeah, kind of yeah. His, his agent said that to me. His agent said they were afraid of that 3 a.m. phone call. And, wow. uh, and, and, and I think they, and they wanted to transition to a little more perimeter team, and Larry Johnson could shoot much better than LJ could. So um, that's why they swung the deal. Uh, and so, yeah, you know, they went to that season really with, you know, they were, they were, they were a good team before that. And they went in, uh, they really kind of rebuilt on the fly, you know, the three new starters to yeah. a, a good team. Um, and you brought in Larry Johnson and Childs and, and Houston. And, uh, and they were really good that first year with that crew. Yeah. And I'm going to go into that and kind of the mix in the heat, but I definitely wanted to say it wasn't like Mace disappeared. You know, he played decently in Charlotte. Um, yeah. Oddly, uh, he became an all-star what, with the heat in like 2001, age 34. Um, and I was kind of watching some video anticipation of that. Like he still, there was some, um, there's a video on YouTube. Y'all, y'all just check out Anthony Mace in the heat um, where he had like 17 points and like six assists or something against the Lakers back in time. And he's like posting up 
Shaq, you know, making <laughs> sick times off the post, you know, face-up game, 50-foot jumper, still had the hitch and everything. But, like, the guy had kind of made himself into just this really solid player to the fact that if you can consider, you know, you look at where he was, you know, kind of just catching on with the Knicks to then being, like, the main guy in a trade for Larry Johnson, who, yes, had been injured, was still Larry Johnson. Like, that is a heck of a way to kind of play up, you know? Yeah, he was he was a really unique player um, because he had the I mean, he was jacked. I mean, he was he was like he was one of the strongest guys in the league, solid. one of the toughest guys in the league. But then he had this crazy handle, too. Yeah. Like, and it would you, like he bring up the ball, bring a ball up the court and go in between his legs. And you're like, wait, guys, that size, that, <laughs> that tough arms, they're not supposed to. Yeah, they're not supposed to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was really quick and uh, he could pass the ball. It was a he had a weird um, he 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 was ahead, he was really ahead of his time in a lot of ways because he could he had the quickness and strength to guard every position um, wow. which you know a lot of guys do now I mean they would sometimes they put him on the point guard and then he'd be guarding Olajuwon in the finals you so mentioned how good a job was yeah that's that's <laughs> wow that's it was insane. It was insane. I really just like yeah. the, the additional insight you gave on him. So by the time he was trailing, dang, like at this point, I had already known, you know, 95, you know, the whole 94 when we get to Elijah one, everything there. Um, really right. fun. I just want to close out that segment by saying, listen, that 96 offseason, our book's not out. You can do it, Paul. Like, I'll, right. I'll, I'll buy. You know, it's available. <laughs> but going to um, the Knicks heat. Uh, you had the 97-98 series. Again, just kind of what were your thoughts on that? I mean, you remember the Larry Johnson-Alonzo morning brawl? It, it was a lesser version of the Bulls-Knicks clashes where they kind of all blur together. I mean, I just separated by 97. The Heat win, 98, Knicks come back. Um, of course, there's 99 as well and 2000 for convention. But I just want to kind of go into the main lines with this last kind of iteration of uh, more of a Ewing-led kind of Knicks roster. Yeah, it was a different – it was uh... – it was different, you know, that, that especially in 97, 98, they had more firepower offensively than they had before mm-hmm. um, because you didn't really lose any offense. I mean, Harper left, but Harper was declining a little. Childs was okay. But the big, but Houston brought that element, you know, that, that great knockdown shooter that they desperately needed and they didn't have early on. And as I said, you know, I, uh, Larry Johnson had a little more offensive game than, than, than Mason. In particular, that you know Mason mostly operated in the post, and that was Patrick's territory. So LJ could step out a little bit; he could shoot the three a little bit. It worked mm-hmm. a little better with spacing. Um, but yeah, that that '97 team in particular was really, really good team, and uh, and the, the, they had the suspensions of the Miami series that was killer. Yeah. Um, and then you know they beat them in '98, and then the '99 2000 version was different. Those, those, those teams Nixon were different they kind of rebuilt again they kind of you know by bringing in Sprewell and Camby um those guys added uh brought a lot of uh athleticism they mm-hmm. they really you know as a team with that was getting older you know Oak and Starks in particular were getting older Patrick was getting older um you know La- Larry was breaking down and and Allen was still in his prime, but some, you know, some of the guys from the early nineties were getting older and then you inject these tremendous athletes in, in Spree and Camby, both of them, you know, in different ways, Camby was a big, obviously, uh, but he was, uh, he was all over the place in, in 99 when they went to the finals. I mean, just blocking shots and running the floor and, 
Um, and Spree was Spree was another another oh, yeah. altogether. Spree was um, my guy, yeah. <laughs> so that so that like, again kind of changed up the the team a little bit and added a new dimension. Mm, I was gonna say you kind of touched on both those points I was gonna get at, which is like the loss of Oakley and starts uh, for Camby and Spreewell. I mean, Oakley was tough for him, of course, for New York as well. I'm um, just having that guy, um, and then for Starks and Spreewell. I mean, Starks again did not know this, but behind the scenes, like you know, they wanted to play with each other. You know, Starks allowed me for Latrell back in '96. Um, Latrell cried, you know, when he realized that he was going to New York, but at the expense of John Starks, you kind of touch on the homecoming for both teams and the different dynamics there. You know, Latrell came back to Golden State. They weren't happy with him. The film was mutual. You know, he played angry, you know, <laughs> and they got it. Um, and then meanwhile, Starks come back to New York, you know, they embraced him. He, he wrote how he almost cried. Um, really, really emotional. And how, you know, the Knicks prevailed in both because the Warriors were, were pretty bad during those times. But, like, also just how interesting it was, the dynamic there. Because, well, okay, you know, Spiro for Starks, nice, but not that they had a long-standing relationship before that and wanted to just kind of go together. I thought that was really neat. And also a little bit sad, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, it really would have been interesting if Spree had come a few years earlier. Um, and you know, I think I, I, the Knicks. You know, I talked to management. They didn't. They didn't want to give up Starks. Um, they felt better about it than they did. I mean, I think there was a sense that his he was getting a little older and he wasn't quite. You know, he he was such a great athlete when he was younger, and a lot of that was starting to go. Yeah. Um, so they weren't as reluctant to give him up as they would have been a few years earlier. Mm-hmm. But they didn't. They didn't want to give him up. Um, but the the Golden State really wanted. I mean, you got to give up something to get. Three's value is three's value was down because of the choke incident, but um, you had to give up something of value. And and uh, and Golden State really wanted Starks because they wanted some kind of name in return for Sprewell. Mm. Like we did. This, it was but really Yeah, you know that happens right when you make a trade. Like they they didn't want to give up Starks, but it was it was a no brainer. They had to, they had to make that deal. Of course, of course. And I guess that leads right to ninety nine. Um. I just put the finals run together. That year was just insane. I mean, you kind of covered it in like two chapters. This the tumultuous kind of run that was. Um, you had the lockout. You had the inconsistent start, which let's be real, you kind of described it. Reading every year, the Knicks kind of started kind of inconsistent. Never they came out right high off the gate, but they had that. Yeah. Um, you had the weird firing of Ernie Grunfeld over dinner. <laughs> that was unique. Yeah. Uh, kind of all that, and then also the injury to Ewing in the way that the Knicks really started to kind of say, okay, it's no longer your team. We're kind of taking it to these young guys we brought in, namely Sweetwell Houston being together and the leading scorers, and then Houston, uh, not Houston, um, can be to a lesser extent, um, from the defensive end. So, kind of describe just how weird that year was. I mean, as a fan and kind of breaking it down as a writer years later. Yeah, it was really weird. Um, it it just uh, you know wasn't wasn't as weird as last season with the bubble, um, <laughs> but. But you can see how, you know, there's a rhythm to an NBA season and there's a, and there's a, you know, you need a, you need a real training camp and you need, um, uh, guys get to need to get to know each other and it takes a little while to start to play together. And, and, and they were playing four games in five nights, which is crazy. Um, and, uh, the Knicks had injuries and all the the new, the new players that we talked about. And so it, it just took a, and then no, no, no training camp to kind of integrate those new parts um, it took a long time for them to kind of put it together. Expectations were really high because, you know, they had, they had been pretty good for the few years before. And, and then they brought in Spreewell and Camby and it was like, okay, well, this team's going to be really good. And then after 42 games, they're 21 and 21. And that's when Grunfeld was fired. <clears throat> um, I think unfairly, I think, you know, you need more than, 
you know, 42 games in a really weird season to judge, like, yeah. what, what a, you know, to judge a guy. What they're gonna do. Um, yeah. That was a lot of, again, that was personality conflict too behind that. It wasn't just basketball decision, but um, so it was really weird. It took Spree missed a number of games. Patrick had hurt his Achilles a little, but was in and out of the lineup. Um, they almost had two, it was almost like two teams. Like they, they, there was one way they played with Patrick and then, uh, when he wasn't there, it was more guard-oriented offense. Um, it's really amazing. I mean, you know, so they, they 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 snuck into the playoffs. They got the eighth seed. They're, they're still the only eighth seed to make it to the finals. Um, but that team was way more talented than your normal eighth seed. And, 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 you know, they only played 50 games in the season. If that had been a regular 82-game season, you know, by the end of the year, they were playing a lot better. They kind of figured it out. Everybody was healthy. And that team would have, you know, would have climbed in the standings. They wouldn't yeah. have been AC. No. Um, this ran out of time. Right. And then they, they met, like, once again, they met the Heat in the first round, who was the one seed, and, and they beat the Heat on an incredible shot by Allen Houston. Yep. And uh, had this kind of miraculous run to the finals that nobody ever, nobody could have imagined or foreseen. And it was, it was, mm. it was really exciting. No, definitely. I, I love, you know, the L, you have a picture of it too. Love the picture just kind of in, 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 like just in the book, but on the LJ four point play, um, I remember just replays of that. I was like way young when I first came, but I remember watching with my family because my pops introduced basketball to me, big Tonic fan, which is shocking because I'm a Lakers guy. We'll talk about it later. Um, anyways, but like going in and like watching, just hearing the crowd, um, two moments I remember from that year. One, when he knocked down that, that four point shot, the other one, Latrell's people had that dunk in the finals. Um, oh, yeah. where it just gives that shot of the crowd, Master Square Guard just going insane. It was it, it was insane. Um, but looking at it, I, the way you described the finals, I mean, you were very matter of fact about it. the Spurs were just better. Um, they were just bigger. You know, the Knicks offense slowed to an absolute crawl. I mean, you only had eight assists in one game. The only ones who could generate any sort of offense consistently were Latrell Spruill and Allen Houston. Um, the only yeah. two guys I didn't realize who scored double figures for the series. Like, that's yeah. that's that's kind of crazy. Yeah, and you know, the loss of um, Ewing was definitely important, but like you said, 37, his Bible's already breaking down, it wouldn't have been enough anyway. You know, at best, yeah. him and David Robinson have, like, one last class for old times. But really interesting how he kind of went into that. You know, it wasn't – it was what it was. They made the finals, but the Spurs were just kind of a better team. Was that – I mean, you described the games in pretty good detail. That was kind of how it felt. Did you feel um, that game five was kind of your shot? Because Latrell Spreewell was – I mean, so was Tim Duncan. But Latrell Spreewell for the Knicks had it going on in game five. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they were in that game. It was the kind of thing, too, in the moment. I mean, I think by the end of the series, you can look back and be like, well, the Spurs were just, they were just a better team. But in the moment, you know, I think all the fans are like, oh, well, why can't we win? Mm-hmm. You know, nobody thought nobody thought we were going to win the first round. Nobody thought we were going to get past the Pacers. Like, you know, we're something special is going on here. Maybe we can. You know, Spree's playing great. Houston's playing great. Cammy's playing great. Um but yeah, the just the, the Duncan and Robinson tandem was, you know, you, you're talking about two time, two all time great big men, just, just, and and you know, it was a different game then. It wasn't as three point perimeter oriented. It was all about that inside play, mm. and they just smothered the Knicks. I remember on defense, like the Knicks, they just they couldn't even get shots off in there. Wow. They just killed them. And Patrick would have helped. Definitely would have helped. It would have helped. Larry Johnson had a badly sprained knee that he was playing through, and if he was healthy, that that would have helped as well. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe, maybe those guys could have pushed the six games, you know, yeah. maybe, but the, the Spurs were the better team. They were, the better team. They were just too good. Yeah. And like you said, they had more help and you said the game was different. I mean, the key shot was like Avery Johnson, 18 footer, which is like, Oh, right. 
okay you know so definitely unique there um i guess now we kind of come to the end like the the end of an era really that kind of toward the end of the book you you still gave it i i appreciate like the detail kind of there was oh well the 90s ended bam bam you know it's over but like you have the 2000 season uh i only put that note down to say you you, as a fan you you know you come off the 99 finals run you're bringing back most of the same team patrick ewing you know assume it's going to be a little healthier what were your expectations for that team and, and how did you kind of see that year unfold yeah, 99, I, I, I'm sorry, uh, 2000, I mean, I, I think everyone, uh, I don't remember, I mean, I think the Knicks were probably the favorites to go back to the finals. Mm, um, yeah. I think certainly New York fans, I mean, we thought we had a really good shot at going to the finals. We went to the, like you said, we went to the finals the year before without Patrick. Yeah. So now we had Patrick back healthy and, you know, otherwise the same roster, like, you know, we felt really good about it. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, you fans. know, Patrick was again. Patrick ended up being banged up come playoff time. I think a, a lot, a big thing that people don't talk about much was that uh, Camby was was basically playing hurt in that series, and Camby was the the difference against Indiana in '99. Um, he was just dominant in that series, and in 2000, he he wasn't. He was a shell of of that player. Um, but I mean, you know, they made it to the conference finals. Like that's. that's yeah. You know, a good season. Uh, it was disappointing that they didn't get back. Absolutely. Um, and, I mean, I'm sure they would have lost to the Lakers if they did. Get <laughs> yeah, <laughs> match would have been just as bad, if not worse, right? <laughs> uh, but yeah, so it was it was mildly disappointing, but. You know, like I said, going to the conference finals is still that's still a pretty good year. Yeah, definitely. And like you said, I mean, the Knicks uh, obviously the Pacers in a tough round in '99. Uh, the Pacers kind of returned the favor in 2000. Uh, and I guess from that point, I'm transitioning back to who it started, which is Ewing. Um, kind of what was the decline like between like '98 and 2001? It's kind of becoming less and less of that player. You have guys like Van Gundy having to defend him more when the Knicks play better without him. In fact, in that series alone, um, the 16 series against the Pacers, you know. All their wins happen without Ewing. All their losses with him on the court. Or, I mean, probably, come on, just coincidental. But, like, in the sense of, like, yeah, there was a shift in play. Um, what did you see in his own shift in play? And kind of lead us to the Ewing trade. You know, you kind of had, you know, Latrosco and others that were like, yeah, I think we are. Um, you know, hey, the numbers say that we're better. We're probably better. You know, that sort of dynamic. Kind of go into that for me. Yeah, it was um... – it was frustrating. I think it was frustrating for everybody. You know, I think there there was this, you know, I, I touched on before how they were at 99. They were kind of a, a different team. It was kind of like two different teams. It was mm-hmm. kind of this sped up, you know, they like to run, especially Childs was best when he was running spree, Camby, um, push the ball up, up and down the floor. And, and, and that was never really, well, maybe it was really young, but Patrick certainly an old Patrick couldn't play that well. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it was somewhat of a different team when he was in there. And then there was this, you know, feeling, I think, among the fans and to an extent with his teammates that, well, wait a minute, we made it to the finals without him, mm. right? So do we really need this guy more? And, or, you know, not so much do we really need him, but do we, you know, should he be such a focal point of this team? Should, you know, and 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 that started to shift, as you, as you alluded to. And, and, you know, late in games, Van Gundy started calling plays for, Spiegel on Houston instead of Patrick when Patrick came back. Um, I think some of it was personal in the locker room. You know, I got the sense talking to some of the guys. And Patrick was cool with most of the guys, but like kind of his guys were gone. You yeah. know, he was very close with Starks. He was very close with Herb Williams, who oh, didn't wow. play much at the end, but who was was around and retired after 99. 
Um, he did have a good relationship with Oak, as we talked about. They weren't best friends, but they were cool, and they went back a number of years. And so kind of his guys were gone. And as an age thing, too, you know, like Houston, Spree, Camby were like late 20s, and Patrick was pushing 40. And, you know, yeah. it's a different – those guys would go to the club every night, and he's, you know, married, home with kids. And yeah. I think he felt a little out of place, like what looking around the locker room, like, do I still belong here? And then on the court, you know, he wasn't – they weren't treating him and – showing him the respect of the same old Patrick. And um, so he felt uncomfortable. And yeah, there was this narrative that, you know, among, you know, WFAN people calling in and fans saying, you know, yeah, he's, you know, he's hurting the team. And um, I I, I was never comfortable with that. Yeah. First of all, I don't think it was true. Yeah. Uh, And, and I think, um, you know, I think for the reasons we kind of started this, this podcast on how he had kind of a, he had a tense relationship with the fans kind of since early on. And I think that's why I think they were quick to turn on him because of that, because it was, they were never that cool with him. Yeah. Um, and that, that was unfortunate. Uh, and so he left, they, you know, he has to be traded. They traded him, and um, it was a bad move for the Knicks. It was a bad move for Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> this didn't work for anybody. Yeah. 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 It was, it was just not, it was kind of sad how it ended. That yeah, way. for sure. And I guess that leads right to Van Gundy resigning. I mean, kind of abruptly. Um, he just kind of said he was done. And I think uh, looking at both him and Ewing, they both kind of regret their departures. But like Van Gundy, was it just kind of, was it as out of nowhere as it kind of appeared to be? Yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't in that he had considered it for a while. It wasn't like he woke up one day and was like, you know what, I'm done. Yeah. Um, he, he'd been talking about it for several months to, yeah. on, the, on the outs and had spoken to, like, management about it. Um, so on the outside, uh, I actually talked to Peter Vesey about this. Vesey told me during the previous season he had heard reports. He, he confronted Van Gundy about it, and Van Gundy was like, yes, I'm thinking about it. Please don't report on it. Oh, wow. I'll give you a, I'll give you a good story down the road if you keep this one quiet. Yeah. Um, so he had been thinking about it for a while. I think he was somewhat burnt out. <clears throat> um, and I think he didn't feel, you know, I talked to him about it. He, he, he basically said he was like, once Patrick and Larry Johnson left, he said it wasn't, it didn't feel the same anymore. He yeah. was very close to Larry Johnson and uh. Uh, he just felt like, uh, I think he was burnt out and, and felt like, you know, it, he didn't feel as comfortable there anymore. Yeah. Either. Got you. And then they have the Knicks kind of at that point fall apart at that, you know, yeah, Houston got signed that outrageous contract. Um, and then just kind of immediately almost falls apart six around like 2005 though. But like, plays i think i had like i'd written a, a piece on scott layden um in his next tenure and how he played like 30 percent of that yeah layden in general was just an odd fit um Terrible. Terrible. <laughs> yeah and then the trust being traded dolan taking more of a move i mean the Knicks becoming the Knicks that we kind of know now um but kind of shifting from that to just your kind of general thoughts on the Knicks today is uh, on the nba today really but as, as a Knicks fan how do you feel about their kind of recent resurgence? And I say that in, in a measured way. I don't look at this roster and go, oh, yeah, you know, they're going to contend for years to come. I feel like the Knicks had some success last year, went to the offseason, went to try to lock in that success, um, have a little bit of team control on those contracts. So I don't feel that horrible about it, but it is definitely an odd mix. But, like, the way they play um, is definitely some grinded-out basketball. A lot on the defensive side, you know, they kind of eke out their points. Uh, as a fan, what do you think when you kind of watch this team and, and, and they remind you of anything in the past? Like, let's see your looks there. Yeah, I mean, I, I love this team. I love this. Um, <laughs> you know, part of, I mean, part, look, part of it is I've never had a team in any sport that, you know, that I root for that uh, 
surpassed my expectations mm. as much as the team did. Right. Yeah. So that makes it fun. When you're expecting them to be terrible and they end up with a four seed, I mean, that's fantastic. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's, you're just playing with house money. It's just it's fun. Um, yeah. So it was a lot of fun. And, and, I, and that was the best thing about last year. Like, I think Knicks fans just had fun. You know, it was nice just to have a good team. And for, for a minute, everyone was not jumping on management or thinking about dissecting every move or thinking about the future. It was just like, you know what? We're winning right now and it's fun and let's just go with it. Enjoy um, right now. Yeah. And uh, it does, you know, Tibbs, I talked to Tibbs uh, for my book because he was, a, he was an assistant coach for the Knicks in the, in the late nineties. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the, 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 the approach that this kind of a no nonsense approach this past year, that really, that reminded me of the nineties accountability you know yeah. my favorite my favorite things the whole year my favorite things were when uh even more than winning games was when the knicks would have a bad defensive possession they give up like an uncontested dunk and tibbs would call a timeout immediately immediately <laughs> yeah. it was like i mean right away it was like sit your ass down like yep. we're talking Reflex. about this like this isn't gonna fester like we're dealing with it i'm not tolerating this yeah. so that i really like the the return to accountability um and watching them play hard was really fun and encouraging. And that reminded me of, of nineties Knicks. And, uh, and I actually really liked their off season initially when I first heard the reports, I wasn't happy. And then you hear that all the deals like the last year, the deals are not guaranteed. Yeah. Uh, the team options. And, um, and then the Kemba thing happened. And yeah. I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure exactly how much Kemba has left with his knees, but at that price, I mean, yeah. You can't, you can't it's pretty good. <laughs> so I think like, I actually think it was a good off season. I don't know. It's weird because I, I've talked about this. I think they, I think they could, I think they're going to be a little better team and still have a lower seed. Mm. I, I think like, um, like Miami's going to be a lot better. Yeah. Um, you know, the Knicks seeded ahead of Atlanta last year and Atlanta's a really good team that kind of together. And I think they'll be ahead of the Knicks. So, you know, Boston could be a lot better. So I think the Knicks, I think they could be a better team and still not ranked as high. Um, but I like, I like the moves in that there wasn't a big move to make, you know, there wasn't a superstar available yeah. to make that big jump. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, all right, you know what, we're going to, we're going to keep building. We're going to get a little better. We're going to add a little more talent. And I think they did it on with flexible contracts, you know, all those contracts, they're, they're, de- they're decent prices. They're only two years guaranteed. And if next summer there is a guy available, they can get off of those contracts. They're tradable contracts. So I think they did a good job of improving a little bit this year um, without kind of locking themselves into bad contracts and limiting their mobility in the future. Definitely, definitely. And I'm, I'm sorry, they're going to be competitive. Like you said, they could have went all in on, you know, classic Knicks moves of like trading it all for Lowry or whatever the case may be. Right, right, um, right. These like short-sighted moves that wouldn't have moved the needle much. But this is a more measured kind of response. I'm a lot more... Um, optimistic about it because of that flexibility toward the end first of all okay these guys are good um and this wasn't like a flash in the pan thing but like how high do you think this can actually go you know you're really looking at rj barrett really looking at um julius randall who they did extend as well um and seeing them so i think you have this time now where you kind of bank on that internal development a little bit you have the continuity you have the same style with tibbs at the head and you have guys who really buy in i mean one of my favorite games this year was watching the Lakers versus the Knicks. And mind you, the Lakers, I think were missing um, AD or they were missing uh, 
Um, LeBron, they might have been missing both, but that game was tense. The Lakers kind of needed it. We were there yeah, at a stretch yeah. where they needed to kind of stay outside of what they eventually fell at seventh seed. But the Knicks were tough, and that game was a grinded out game. The Lakers prevailed, but it was like this is like some early, late nineties, early two thousands ball because every possession yeah. matters. The Knicks were like just slumming it out on offense. On defense, yeah. they were grinding everything out, and it's like. They took this game, in fact, for a bunch of games last year. They took these games and they like took them to 2021 and put them on time capsule, just brought them way back. And having yeah. Tibbs kind of that relation from the 90s, then it just it's a it's a really good synergy as a hoops fan, as a as a as a fan of the game, history of the game. It's really kind of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Really enjoy okay. that. And then my last question for you, um, Paul, uh, just again, thank you. Um, just coming on and guessing your time. This sure, was a man. really, really fun time. But like, what are your thoughts on the NBA as a stance today? You did a lot of research, you know, a lot deep diving on the NBA as of, you know, 25, 30 plus years ago. You look at that. We talked a little bit about the parallels between the free agency process and trades and all that sort of thing, um, player management. And you look at now, um, what do you feel about it? Like, is it markedly different for the better or worse? What are your kind of thoughts? It's definitely market, marketably different. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I don't, I, I don't, uh, I mean, this may be a cop out answer, but it's, it's pluses and minuses. Yeah. I think some things are a lot better. You know, mm-hmm. like, uh, is it, I feel like I'm watching a totally different game. You know what I mean? Like, it's a yeah. sport. I mean, it was so, especially the 90s Knicks, you know, it was so like grinded out and slow. And, the, you know, the Knicks played playoff games with a heat where they'd win 77 73, you know, and, wow. and, and that was great. I, I think um, I think it went too far that way. In other words, like it was so physical that you couldn't, you know, guys like Steph or Kyrie, like they'd be great players in, in, in any era. I mean, they're, you know, those, those guys are basketball geniuses, but they couldn't showcase their skills quite the way that they do now because because now you can't put a hand on a guy. Yeah. You know, back then, you'd have your hand on Derek Harper would have his hand on Kyrie's waist, pushing him <laughs> one way. And uh, so I think there's some real, you know, the game has opened up so much with three pointers. And I think there's some, I think it's kind of more um, aesthetically pleasing because of that, you Mm -hmm. know, because, because guys are able to show their skills more when they're not being clutched and grabbed all the time. Um, Things I miss about the nineties though, I miss, uh, you know, with that physicality came a certain, I think more intensity um, and, you don't have the rivalries now that you had then. And I think no. some of that is like the physicality. Um, another thing is rosters are turning over a lot more now. Guys, contracts aren't as long. You know, you used to have like seven-year contracts. Like guys aren't. Yeah. Guys are the rosters turning over. So like, so like when the Knicks met the Heat in the playoffs four years in a row, it was like the, it was like the same guys, you know, going every, out year. every year. Or even like the Knicks Pacers who met six times from 93 to 2000, like, it was always Reggie and Smiths and the Davis boys. And on the Knicks end, you had Ewing and Oak and Stark. You know, it was like this. So that kind of built up the rivalries. And I, so I, I missed that. Okay. Um, and then, the, you know, the player empowerment thing is interesting. Uh, it's just different. Um, and I have conflicting feelings about that. I'm all for player empowerment. Mm-hmm. I'm, all, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm all for workers' rights, right? And these yeah, guys, they may be millionaires, but they're workers. And mm-hmm. they should have the – they should, like anyone else, they should be able to play where they want to play and command the contracts that they can command and, you know, dictate their movements. I, be, I believe in that. Um, but there's the fan in me that kind of doesn't like it. <laughs> yeah, because they can they be gone to the slightest provocation. Yeah. And I don't like, I don't, and it just like, uh, man, I don't like, I don't like that James Harden forced his way to 
to Brooklyn to play with Kyrie and Durant. Like, mm-hmm. you know what? Go beat Kyrie and Durant. Don't there join you them. You know? <laughs> that's my, that's, so that bothers me. And, I, and again, I, I hold both of those feelings, though. At the same time, I'm like, you know what? Kyrie's looking like, hey, that looks like a really fun place to play basketball. I could win there. You know, bless him. Like, he let, you know, he has the right. I, I believe he has the right to do it, whatever he wants to make himself happy. Yeah. That doesn't mean I have to like it. <laughs> no, no, that was me with KD going to the Warriors. I mean, a lot of right, people were, right. but I said the same thing. Like that matchup we had a seven game series, not only in my mind, were that one of the best we've seen, and we could have seen that for a couple more years to come, but also it wasn't like KD gave it all he had and lost. Like, no, he stuck up the court. Like, if you watch like game six and game seven, those are not very good Kevin Durant games. Like, yeah, you feel like no, certain they players won that series. Exactly. Yeah. And you feel like certain players are going, you know what? Like, let's give one last shot. I, I let my team down, whatever the case may be. And not, oh, no, you know, it'd be a lot more fun to play. Like, yes, you had that right. I respect that, but I'm going to like it at all. And I did not. Like, I was not a Russell Westbrook fan before that, and I became one just because I was like, that's just messed up, especially when the team, and you see it when Durant left, was obviously built. It's like Ewing bolting, but just randomly. When you have the team, Ewing bolting in 90, 96, there you go. When the team was built around Ewing, you take him gone. It's like, no, that, that team had ramifications where, wow, like, where are we right now? Where's our identity? And you're right, a lot of that happened. Yeah, um, and it it was it was definitely different. Um, That's LeBron, I, and, you know, frankly, it was kind of like a, I, uh, it was really nice to see Giannis win yes. in Milwaukee. You know, small market, and he stuck it out. And he's like, no, I want to win in Milwaukee, and I'm not going to go, you know, play with a superstar in L.A. And no. I'm going to – and, uh, by the way, that's – I don't uh, – there's a new biography of him by Mirren Fader. Oh, yes. Uh, which is excellent. It's okay. actually, his story, man, uh-huh. unbelievable. His backstory <laughs> is incredible. And she's a great writer. So yeah, it's really, uh, uh, yeah, I recommend that book for sure. Okay, for sure. That's, that's on the list this this, this offseason for sure. Man, Paul, thank you for coming on. Um, just honestly, just being a boon with your time, man. Really appreciate it. Um, where can we find you on Twitter? At Paulie Knapp, P-A-U-L-I-E. At K-N-E-P. I don't know your website, the Knicks of the 90s.com. Just more links of like right. reviews and, and podcast experiences and stuff. And it's, I mean, I listen to a few very insightful stuff, but I'm um, like, were any projects up to kind of where can we kind of see you? Uh, I, I'm, I'm kind of uh, trying to come up with a new book idea right now. So okay. I, I'm n- nothing to report on that yet, but hopefully soon. Um, hey, I'll let we, everyone know. We, we, we kind of alluded to one. I really think you should look yeah. into that. That'd yeah, it's not a bad idea. That's yeah. a void That's there, fun. man. Yeah. <laughs> All right, for sure. Um, Check out, y'all. It's called The Knicks in the 90s. You can find it on Amazon. Um, that's where I looked and found you also can go to Knicks in the nineties.com. There's links, um, for Amazon, IndieBound, Barnes and Noble, McFarland, just wherever you find books. Um, I'm a paperback guy, so I went and did that, but it's, it's a really, really good book. Um, more bang than the buck, hundred percent. You'll have a great read. And again, Paul, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Corbin. I appreciate it. Oh, it was oh, a lot of fun. Thanks a lot. Yeah. And of course, you know where to find me on Twitter at Corbin NBA. Um, online for hoopball hoop-ball.com on twitter at hoopball tweets um until next time y'all we're frosty y'all stay frosty i'll talk to y'all real soon all right y'all This has been a Hoop Bowl presentation.